There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. This week's guest presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies is Ryan Kelly. Now, I feel like I got to jump in here because I want to have Ryan Kelly on because Ryan and I have talked about his story uh, from... I don't want to, from rags to riches wouldn't be a, a fair way to, to portray it. I don't think Ryan would call it that, but how he built his business. Um, and so I understand I'm cutting this off at the pass. I understand that somebody might listen to this and go, Oh, you're having a sponsor on and then organically conducting some marketing, uh, by portraying it as an interview. So I want to make this crystal clear. This was my idea. And Ryan a couple of times said, uh, you know, you must be getting hard up for guests, you know, something self-deprecating like, yeah, I know, I appreciate it, but I don't really. And I said, honestly, because when Ryan and I have been hanging out and, you know, just will be BSing and then he starts telling me, you know, what what he did in order to get where he is. It's an entrepreneurial story that I find not only to be incredibly entertaining, um, inspiring for future entrepreneurs or people considering it right now, but also uh, tells the tale of, of anybody who's ever started a business. I would imagine of all of the hits and misses, the near hits, the near misses, the importance of timing. And then really, even though it's telling a story in telling the story, you hear all kinds of lessons, whether it be business lessons, entrepreneurial lessons or life lessons. And so I knew that it would make for uh, an entertaining interview. So I want to make that clear. Now, you can say, well, I don't believe you, and that's fine. Uh, the uh, Will Ferrell Anchorman uh, gif. I, I, don't, I don't blame you. But I'm just telling you, put me on a lie detector. This was 100% uh, my idea. I can tell you. I mean, it's not like we're, we've been hard up for interviews. What, over the last few weeks? What, Jay Nixon, uh, Joe Buck, Rich Gould? How about that sode? People loving the Rich Gould sode. Uh, and of course, when you have the former governor doing his force long form interview, and then Joe Buck just sitting there BSing about all kinds of random stuff for 90 minutes, we've had some good ones. And I interviewed Courtney Bryant of KMOV. Uh, she will be our interview next week. Um, and I'm of the opinion, Courtney Bryant is going to be a monster, monster star in broadcasting. So this is not a case of, oh my God, we don't have a guest. We better get Ryan on. Mike Shannon's going to be on by the way. Um, here, I guess we're going to be doing that interview in the next week or so. So this is, uh, an interview I wanted to do because I, I've heard Ryan's story and all that went into what he has built. And I personally, and I don't know about you, I've had a few people email me actually. So I guess some people certainly like them, like hearing people's stories, their entrepreneurial stories, the, the moments that were so defining. And so uh, Ryan tells his story, plenty of which I didn't know of how, you know, just to, you know, put it in a nutshell, 
I mean, he was he was operating a nightclub on Washington Avenue in the late 1990s. Uh, and now Brian Kelly is all over, uh, you know, a couple of regions really in the United States as he grows his business, the home loan dot com. Uh, so Ryan Kelly, our guest today, presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. Uh, Ryan Kelly here on the Tim McKernan Show telling his story. And not just his story, by the way, some behind the scenes on the battle on Broadway with Timberfake. And then also uh, what he is about to do, which is the fourth annual Climb for the Kids. And you might be going, okay, you know, charity work, you know. I respect it, but I'm not really all that engaged by it. You'll be engaged by this because what Ryan does, listen, he could cut a check and be be done. Um, and there's nothing wrong with cutting a check and being done. But he is actually, for the third time, he will be climbing a mountain. And then he goes into detail of what they're going to be doing uh, as this isn't just like, you know, hiking up a mountain. This is a legit thing. My palm started sweating as he was telling the story. So that's what we have for you here today. On the Tim McKernan Show, Ryan Kelly from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. He is my guest here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. So I'm honored to have you in here. I'm honored to have you in here. You've been a sponsor of what is known as the Ryan Kelly Morning After for what? I think we're going on around seven or eight years. I think that's the number. It's been a while. I'll go yeah. with that. Seven, eight years. And um, it's been a great ride. And it's um, it's been one of my favorite um, shows that I've sponsored over Which the years. Which is saying something because you're all over the place. We try to be message out there is through our aggressive marketing with the homeownexpert.com. I kind of joke around, but, uh, you know, my primary job is to make the phones ring. If the phones don't ring, then none of us have a job. So, yeah, yeah we do a lot of marketing. A lot of that's in sports. In the sports world, I would say, without looking at the details, I bet 85% of our annual marketing budget ties into sports marketing of some sort. Right. So that's kind of where I put my flag, and I think most folks know that. We we joke at the office, got to craft a spot for this, but real sports fans get their mortgage from the homeownexpert.com. Well, I like that. the way it is, that's right? That's a nice little tagline right there. <laughs> well, but and I'm, I'm sure plenty of people are going to see this one pop up, and they're going to go, oh, Tim's just floating his sponsor a podcast. And I, and I don't blame people for thinking that. But I asked you, this wasn't like you saying, hey, could you do some organic marketing and have me come on? And this was me because I am fascinated by entrepreneurs in general, whether whether we succeed or whether we fail. Everybody's got a story. And some stories are uh, have incredibly happy endings and some are pretty sad. But it, I respect anybody who took their shot, whether it works or it doesn't. And for you, and we've just kind of like when we're hanging out, you've kind of told me like, a, you know, probably like the chapter one version of the story. But I don't think that people realize what you did to get where you are now. And so this is more of a business entrepreneurial story uh, than it is um, a sponsored segment, so to speak. It's not a sponsored segment. I asked you to come in as a guest, and I, I bet so many people in St. Louis and now all over the place, especially in the Southeast, are starting to see you and know you and may not know the story. So... Let's tell the story today, sir. I can't wait to hear the story. I am looking forward to sitting back and listening. So let's get the uh, the St. Louis question out of the way. The high school? Kirkwood. Kirkwood Pioneer Proud. Kirkwood Pioneer Proud. And did you go to uh, college? Merrimack Junior College. Merrimack Junior College. All right. And, and in the late 1990s, because we're about the same age, you are not in the mortgage industry. What are you doing? Oh, wow. We're going back. Yeah. I oh, go, that's, that's I where I hope I the go. listeners I gotta, are I ready. And, oh, uh... I can't wait. This is... This is <laughs> 
This is what makes to me. This is what makes it so amazing. Although then it really gets something else here in a bit, in about ten years, I guess. And we'll see how that story ends because we're not done telling that story yet. We're not done writing that book yet of uh, my career and the homeowner expert and what comes after. And that's the big thing on my mind now is what comes after because this isn't something I can do my entire life. At some point, I'll fall on the ground and just um, have to stop. But let's get into it. So, um, gosh, you want to go back into oh, the, yeah. back I, into the beginning? Is, I can't, I can't, I, this is some entertaining story. Uh, all right, here we go. So, so 1990s, right? Let's start, in, let's start in 1998 because that's a year and there's, um, there's a point in my life that I'll never forget. In 1998, I opened a nightclub down on Washington Avenue. It was called the Monkey Bar when we first opened up. It was at 1224 Washington Avenue, Caddy Corner from the Velvet, which was one of the only clubs down there at that time. And what's there now for people who may be more familiar with it? It's right next to Lucas Park. Okay. I don't know what's so that. So is it on that side of the street on it the is, south It is. Okay. 1224 diagonally from where the Velvet would have been. And um, I was at the time doing commercial real estate. And um, I was working for W.S. Stallings Corporation. That was Bill Stallings and his father. I was showing a lot of strip mall plays, working on leases. We were starting to get involved in the tax credits, historic uh, tax credits, federal and state historic tax credits, then the downtown area, revitalizing it. If yeah. you go back to 98 and before, there wasn't a lot going on down there. It might have been, you know, I think we had Have a Nice Day Cafe pop up. But the developments that you see now with the lofts and everything else, that was just really kicking off there in 95, 96, 97 with these tax credits. Essentially, if you came in and you purchased a historic building and you renovated that per their specs, you can't just uh, make it very contemporary. It has to have some look and feel as if it was originally being built in 1905. So you purchase a historic building, you renovate that, and then you receive tax credits. The federal um, gave you, I think it was 25% of whatever your construction cost back in a tax credit and state gave you 20%. So you could go into downtown St. Louis, buy a big building, put a couple million dollars into it, revitalize it, get it up and running, and then you would receive about 45%, almost half of your cost back in the form of tax credits. So I was working on a lot of that and um, the Washington and all of those streets down there. And um, we had purchased 1224 Washington Avenue. It was a building. We were planning to do retail on the first floor, condos on the upper floors. And I was a project manager on that. So to put this in perspective, I was about 22 years old at that time. Um, we were building the building, and um, the owner of the building, Bill Stallings, he's passed away now, but um, he was kind of a, he was always in the newspapers back then. He owned the Chase, developed the Chase. He did a lot of great things for St. Louis, but that's who I worked for, and um, he had gotten in some trouble, was not allowed to go in any of the other nightclubs, I guess, in downtown St. Louis, <laughs> and he came to me one morning, and he said, let's build a nightclub, and let's get this thing going, and that's your new project. You're done with real estate. I want a nightclub down at 1224. So we started doing a lot of research and, you know, we know what we like, but what do the people like? And after about six months of research and build, we opened up the Monkey Bar at 1224 Washington Avenue. And it was huge. I mean, that opening was incredible. There was a line four blocks down Washington. We had hired limos. We had lights. We had photographers. We were big into, you know, putting the big show on. And um, our first night, someone got thrown through the plate glass windows onto the street. It was um, it was a party, but it was wild. And I ran that nightclub, which, by the way, was changed to the Cheetah. We had a uh, cease and assist, and we got involved in some court action within a month from the Monkey Bar in New York City. Had to change the name. We changed it to 1224, uh, the Cheetah. And um, that was the Cheetah. And a lot of people, if they're old enough to remember, um, spent a lot of good nights and a lot of fun weekends down there. And I didn't really have a marketing budget at the Cheetah. So what I did 
was on Monday morning when most nightclub owners were sleeping, their hangovers off and everything else. I was back in the nightclub with the construction team, redoing things, fixing things up, hanging bird cages from the ceilings, changing the DJ booth location, doing things like that. So every weekend people could come and get a different experience. And then when they went back to work on Monday, it was, uh, did you go to the Cheetah this weekend? Did you see those girls dancing in the cages? Did you see this? Did you see that? And uh, we kind of coined ourselves as the Midwest First Super Club. And the Cheetah was off and running. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. Then right before 2000, so put this in the millennial time, mm-hmm. right when we thought the world was going to end, my father came to me, and which he did every weekend, but this was a serious sit down, and it was, hey, you're done down there. You're done playing around. I'm getting calls from the police, from detectives, from all types of people. There's underage drinking. There's drug use involved. There's underage girls talking about drug use. You're out of there. Time to find something else to do. So. I got out of the Cheetah right at the Millennium. That was um, that New Year's Eve was my last night in that club, wow. and I had moved so on. So January first of two thousand, you're yeah. starting completely clean. You're out of the Cheetah and nightclubs. I was, and it was a good time to hit a good big reset button, I guess, in my life, yeah. and kind of see what was going. And it was fun. I mean, those two years and living above the nightclub and running it in my early twenties was um, something special. And I don't think I would uh, give that back for much. I lived out the dream there. So what was it like? What was the what was the club like? Give me an idea of like what it was. Because now, I mean, you know, I, if you want to experience like a club now, you're either going to have to go to well, I mean, obviously in New York or L.A., but Miami, Las Vegas, something like that. Because I don't really think it's going on really? in St. Louis to the level of what it was like with the '90s or even like 2000s, where we had some clubs here. I'd agree with that. And I don't get out much anymore, but um, I, I I don't hear about it. Is that because I'm old and I'm not down there? Maybe, but I don't hear and feel. The energy down on Wash Avenue in downtown, like we were experiencing those years, it was um, it was an amazing experience. Like I said, on Monday, rebuild the club, change things, do things, and then the show starts on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Those were our big money makers. You know, it was always trying to get the crowd in earlier. For me, it was you know the, the how do you get the crowd? How do you fill this place? Excuse me, at nine o'clock instead of midnight. How yeah. do you how do you get the um, how do you get the bar tabs going earlier? And that was always my battle. But by 10 o'clock, we were open and all three levels were going. DJs um, on the middle floor, we'd bring in the big nightclub DJs like um, Psycho Bitch was a big one at the time from Psycho Chicago. Bitch. Brought in a Bad Boy Bill, Richard Humpty Vision, a lot of these guys, big DJs. We'd bring them in and they occupied the first floor. That was our nightclub. The second floor was more of a lounge feel. We were playing Blondie and things like that. And had a um, you know the 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 booths were around the perimeter of the second floor, so people could walk and talk to people and mm-hmm. see them. And the basement, we never really figured that out. We did, um, we've tried everything in the basement. We did live music when we first opened. We tried um, hip hop, so people could come in like an open mic night. Yeah. We always um, just try to get people in there, more people in, in earlier hours. And I would um, start that operation about ten o'clock. It was in full swing. I had about fifty employees when you put all these security guards, bartenders, barbacks, cocktail waitresses, all that in there. And it was like well-orchestrated chaos is what it was. And, you know, I think that I was known throughout the city as I, I we received so many violations for staying open too late. You know, it would be— What time last, do you have to shut down, supposedly? You need to be shut down, I think, by 2.30 or so in the morning. as a 3 o'clock bar. Everybody had to be out. But I can remember countless nights, about 2.40, jumping behind the bar, spraying the whole crowd with water guns. We're going to stay open until <laughs> they shut us down. And I can remember them shutting us down um, countless times yeah. for those for those little stints, you know. But— um, it was a five hundred dollar fine, and the and the crowd sure did love that. So um, <laughs> I would take those, and then afterwards, I'd worked out a deal. I don't want to go too deep into all this, but um, with one of the local establishments over on the east side, and a buddy of mine at the time, Alberto, and I had worked oh, the deal. Alberto. And 
Alberto would supply girls to dance in my cages early in the night, and then I would send everybody over to Alberto's uh-huh. place afterwards. So I would generally, at the end of the night, all the drawers would come my way. I'd throw it all in the safe, and um, I'd head over east in the morning. I'd come back about 6 in the morning, start oh sorting out the money, God. putting it back together, get some sleep, and then get ready to do it again on Friday and Saturday, you know, Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. And although those were fun times, extremely fun times, and really opened my eyes to a lot of uh, – a lot of cool things. Um, no regrets on, you know, kind of moving on from that. So I got out of the nightclub business. I was probably um, 24-ish, give or take. And I knew I had, to hit, I had to pivot. I had to change. I had to change my lifestyle. Although I wasn't really big in the drug scene and the party scene, I was, I was right there with it. So I moved as far west as I could. And I moved out to Wildwood or Grover into a new development called Lake Chesterfield. And I figured that would give me an appropriate amount of distance between <laughs> Warsh Avenue and that. And I wanted to get back into real estate. That's what I wanted to do. I, you know, gotten a taste of that working with W.S. Stallings at an early age, took the hiatus for a few years, opened and designed a nightclub, you know, managed that nightclub for a while. And I wanted to come back to commercial real estate. So I applied and went to a Gundaker Commercial Group. And at that time, they were they were it. And they were really, you know, um, on top of that, they had an office on Dorset. And I went there and I tried to get into commercial real estate. I was told they weren't hiring at the time and I should get into residential real estate. Give it a shot. See what you can do there and then come back and check with us every year. So I was young and I didn't know better. I listened to them. I believed them. Oh, they're not hiring. I'll go do residential. And I did. And I worked hard. I mean, I sold a lot of houses my first year. Phone duty was an optional thing. By phone duty, realtors will know what this means if if they've been in the game long enough. It's your, um, it's your hours you log working the front desk. And uh-huh. the thought is if people call because they see a sign in the yard, you get the calls, you might have an opportunity to get some clients. Everybody dreaded phone duty. Nobody wanted to do it. I did it 40 hours a week. It was my job. So I scheduled 40 hours every week of phone duty. And then I would just always help other agents, you know, list their, um, show their houses. So on the weekends, I would hold four open houses. I might be a Leave one a little early and a few minutes late to the next one, but I would get out early, set up my balloons and signs prior and get it all ready. So I could do two open houses on Saturday, two on Sunday. And I had a really good year that first year. um, I don't know the exact number, but I sold a lot of houses and I went back to the commercial side of it and said, hey, I'm ready. Nope, we're still not hiring. Hmm. And I knew that, you know, wasn't true at the time, but I was just young and maybe intimidated. And I went back and did another year of residential, sold a ton of houses and um, went back. Nope, we're still not hiring. I knew then I was kind of at a dead end and something had to change. I enjoyed that time in real estate. And that's something that a lot of people in my industry, they don't have both sides experience. They don't have the realtor, the development side, and also the mortgage side. Well, I do. I have all that. And I train that way. And I teach my guys that way. And that's why we get it. We understand buying a house and everything that goes into that because I teach that to my young guys. So coming out, of residential real estate. I did some property management for um, for a short stint, managed about 200 apartments throughout the St. Louis area. Basically, when people would move out, I would send my team in to paint it, redo a floor, fix garbage disposals, whatever it did, and turn it over for the new tenant. And a buddy of mine at the time came to me and goes, you need to get in the mortgage business. You need to get out of this. I don't know what you're doing painting places, but it's time to get you moving again. And um, I, I took that leap of faith and I got in the mortgage business and that's been about 15 years. So if you count my realtor and development and all that, I've got about 18, 19 years in the game, right. about 15 years doing mortgages. And when I got into it. So you're, it, just, you're just working for a mortgage company in oh, yeah. 2003-ish. 
Somewhere in that area. That seems about right. I was um, working for a mortgage company. I was showing my cubicle. Here's your phone. Here's a stack of leads. And um, we don't want to hear from you or see from you. Just start calling these people, take applications, and turn it into the boss. And we are in the heart of subprime lending at that time. Yeah. Everybody could get a loan. Um, the hard part was, you know, finding the people to do the loans. And then once you found them, literally anybody could get a loan at that time. And I worked there for that company for, um, it was Shelter Mortgage here in St. Louis, I worked for Shelter for about five years. I worked my way out of that cubicle and everything else into a position where uh, we didn't really have a um, titles. I'm not big into titles, but I was probably their senior loan officer. You call it what you want. I was um, I was in a I was in a space where I was originating a lot of loans, but I was also doing a lot of babysitting, a lot of uh, managing type stuff. Just I wasn't happy and. Um, I um, knew something had to change there. I could. So you what know, year are we talking about now at this point? We're, we're probably going back 11, 12 years ago from now. Okay. So I'll let you do that math. Right. Say, so um, 2006, seven ish. Somewhere in there. Um, so I'll speed it up. Is actually I can tell you it was um, 2007 and 2008, okay. right in there. So somewhere. you're just frustrated because you've been doing this for a while, and you said something's <clears> got to give. I just got and married. You've been making a, a decent amount of money. I made great money. You know, you made great money. I made great money. I'm not scared to work the hours. I was putting in those hours. I was making good money. I met my wife. And um, for those people that don't know, my wife is my secret. Um, she's my secret weapon. Tracy is the one who has grounded me, got me to where I need to be to do all the great things I'm doing now. Without Tracy, there is no home loan expert. There is no client for the kids. There is no giving back. All the people that you know are on my team, we start. We sometimes jokingly start our Monday morning meetings with, and let's take a moment of silence to thank Tracy for all that she's given <laughs> us. But it's kind of serious. I met Tracy um, working for this other company, and um, we fell in love right away. We knew that we were perfect for each other. My wife is very quiet. Uh, she walks in a room with a lot of people. She likes to gravitate to the back. And I walk into a room with a lot of people, I get louder. I don't <laughs> mind that. And when we first started dating, nobody thought we would work out. It was a joke, really. They're like, there's just no way. Ryan's super hyper and all these great things. And Tracy's a much better person. She doesn't, you know, Ryan doesn't deserve her. She's very calm. And we actually met at a Cardinals game. Um, my roommate and her really liked her roommate. So he's like, you got to go with me to the game and blah, blah, blah. You get the idea there. And we met at a Cardinal sure. game. And, and, um, and we hit it off. And we just came to the realization we're both about 30. We both had, um, you know, a lot of fun. Now, I've had a lot of fun. I've told you I was in the nightclub business and all Absolutely. that. Um, my wife had come from a very small town, very humble, you know, very um, without much. Dad worked three jobs to support my wife, Tracy, and her sister and, you know, try to give them a good life. I mean, he had three jobs and he worked 20-hour days. And that's what he did to support my wife and to raise her. So you can imagine her. She um, she gets engaged to me. I'm this loan officer killing the game in St. Louis, and the family comes down, and they're like, oh, Tracy's married this rich kid from St. Louis. He has a BMW. Look at all these great things. And we get married, and we get um, we get pregnant on our honeymoon. Literally, at the time, I was like, oh, man, that didn't take long. And I was kind of like, oh, only us. And now I look back how blessed we were to be able to get pregnant so quick. But Coming out of those wild party days, getting my life together, meeting the small town girl, getting married, getting pregnant immediately after. And then I came home one day and goes, I'm, I'm quitting my job. I, I'm done working for somebody else. I'm done building his business. I want to do it on my own. And my wife said, I'm seven months pregnant. You worry about all that. I'll worry about the baby. I don't want to stress out. I trust in you. I believe in you. Go out and do it. 
Everybody else called me up. My sister took me out to a lunch. Everybody's like, you, you make more money than dad. What are you doing? You can't just quit. You just got married. You're pregnant. And I mean, the, the pressure really came. Like, go beg him for your job back. Go get your job uh-huh. back. And But my wife was that one person that was just next to me that said, you can do it. I know you can do it. And um, that's the creation. And that's where the story will start, I guess, Yeah. for the home loan expert. That's the journey right there. So to get to that point, because you've told me this, and this isn't an act. I don't, again, I don't blame people for going, oh, Tim's having him in because he's a sponsor or Ryan's saying these positive things about his wife because his wife. When it's just me and you, and I feel comfortable saying this, when it's just me and you and we're just bullshitting, you've said these exact same things to me, and there's obviously no microphones around when we're sitting here bullshitting. And you've talked about Tracy's importance and then also kind of the defining moments of the creation of your business. And so the thing that I, and hey, listen, plenty of people have advantages and then plenty of people start from nothing. Um, And I tip my cap either way to anybody who's willing to take a chance. But you truly did have to, I don't want to say start from nothing. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be disrespectful, I suppose, in a sense. Uh, I had some knowledge built. and I had a lot of drive. Yeah, that, then those are those are those are traits that you certainly need. But you did have some knowledge, but that you didn't like inherit some huge business and then just build it. You created this thing, and then also, as we will hear here in the story, that you were using your own money and mortgaging your own home in order to try and get, to get this thing off the ground. Absolutely. So. Let's go through the journey. Home loan expert, it's been uh, about 10 years or so, a little bit longer than that possibly. But here I am. I quit my job. My wife's pregnant at the time, or maybe we just had Addison. She was our firstborn, and she's over nine years old now. So just left the job, and we didn't have any money at that time. Literally, we had nothing. Like I, like you're talking about? like I might have 200 bucks in my checking account, wow. and, um, and I walked from the job. So literally, we had nothing. Um, do but, you look back on that and go, what in the hell was I thinking? Or do you go, no, I get it. I get it. I know where I was with, with the thought process. I never look back and think, what was I doing? Yeah. I, it was just, it was a path that was meant for me. And it was a, it was a hard path as we'll get to, but, um, I'm pretty tough and I can take it and you need adversity in life. And I do talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and I tell them the first thing they have to do is get really poor and live in their car because if they don't get there, they'll never appreciate growing the business. And and that's what I did. I um I didn't have any money for marketing. I didn't have any money for advertising. So I started knocking on doors, literally knocking on doors, like walking neighborhoods and knocking on doors, asking people for an opportunity to do their mortgage. And we didn't have Google Maps at that time and all the fancy technologies. Heck, I don't think iPhones were really there. Maybe the three had just started to come out. Um, so what I did was I would um, I would photocopy the street guide, the old style street guides with the binder and you kind of flip through the pages and I'd put them on the wall and it would almost look like a beautiful mind or rain man. I mean, my whole wall had the street guides all mapped up, taped on the wall, perfectly done where I had neighborhoods put up. And I would come home at the end of every 12 hour day from knocking on doors and I would highlight all the streets that I had um, been on that night and kind of plan my route the next day. It was all me by myself knocking on these doors, asking for mortgages. And once I started getting some data together, I could realize if I could knock on doors just 14 hours instead of 12, I could get three more people to not slam the door in my face and tell me to get the heck off their porch. And I could get them to talk to me about their mortgage and it would translate into X amount more deals. So that's what I did. I started really working those numbers with the hours of knocking on doors to build the idea of the home loan expert. If you showed up at my door today and I didn't know you and you started talking about my mortgage, I don't know if I would last five seconds. I got to be honest with you. So what was your success rate with this? It was, it was very low, but (laughs) don't have any money at all. You you take the, you take that. I did that for a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. 
And um, I knocked out Old Farm. I knocked out a lot of stuff at the 270 Olive area. That was kind of my area because my mom and dad lived out there. So I knew those neighborhoods, and that's where I and started. And so what did you say? What, what, what was like? Hi, my name is Ryan Kelly, and I, um, I did a loan for Pat and Sue down the street. And um, they gave me permission to go out and talk to some of the neighbors about their home loans and everything else and just drop somebody else's name in the neighborhood that I had already spoken to. Right. The idea was, they let, you know, the goal was to get into the house and sit down at the kitchen table and talk to them about their mortgage. You know, wow. how's your mortgage? You like it? You hate it? You love it? And just start the conversation with people. So homeowner expert infancy, it was me, wife was at home, newborn baby, knocking on doors, no money for marketing. When a loan would close, we would get caught up on our bills because we were always behind. Um, we would go to Sam's and fill up the pantry with as much food as we could shove in the door. And whatever was left, my wife would give me for marketing and I would save that money. After about a year of knocking on doors, a little bit of money has started to pile up, I mean, a couple grand. And I decided it was time to do something a little easier on the feet. So I got in direct response, direct mail, um, postcards is what I was really known for. And I would do the oversized postcards. And I'd buy a list of people maybe with credit card debt that hadn't refinanced within two years, that had a 600 credit score, whatever it is. I, you're able to acquire that I would sit there and I would. And I'm, um, I, I'm an OCD guy, so it would take me a month to buy the right list because that $2,000 list was everything yeah. at the time. And I would call her back, the, the lady at the list company, okay, take the score from 620 to 615. How many more does that give yeah, me? And just yeah. tweak these things like a mad scientist. And we started doing the direct mail. The postcards started going out. And I got a 2% return or response on my postcards, which nobody believed that I could do that. 1% is pretty good, meaning you mail out 100, one right. person calls you. I was hitting 2% and trying to get higher than that. And um, there was still not a lot of money then. I mean, I remember clear as day meeting my mom at the um, Creve Corps post office on New Ballast so she could buy me $400 of stamps to put on those postcards. And I met her there so my dad didn't know because my dad, oh, oh, if you can't, oh, you really? know, and I don't want to hear about that. And my mom, remember, meet me there. Here's $400 worth of stamps. Don't tell dad. This is from my social security check. Get on out there, Ryan, get it going. And um, then I can also remember when we did the oversized postcards. I wouldn't um, use um, the pre-sort companies. I wouldn't allow them to do first-class or postage. I wouldn't allow them to put a label with the people's address on it. We hand-addressed on all the postcards people's addresses. I bought first-class stamps so I could put them sideways, upside down, whatever it is, to make it more legit, you know, and I would use Comic Sans font on my postcard so it looked like a handwritten postcard, and they'd have a funny picture on the front with me in a bathtub or something like that. And we were doing well. I did postcards for about another year, so now I'm two years into the deal knocking on doors, postcards for a year. And my wife and I are pregnant then with our second, that would be Jack. And um, we knew that we had kind of, I started building a platform and um, I was pretty strong where I could do the loans now and I felt comfortable, put my name out there. And I wanted to try something new and I wanted to try something big. And for me, that was radio. And um, I remember a funny story. If Ray Vincent hears this, he'll probably get a, um, a, a, a smile out of this at the very least. When my wife and I first started dating, she would come to my heights, and um, there was a picture of Ray Vincent on my bathroom vanity. And my wife, being from out of town, didn't know who Ray was. And she was, who is this guy on the on the vanity? You know, I'm like, that's that's Ray Vincent. He's the king of mortgages. And one day, I'm going to be the king of mortgages. And I look at his picture every single day. And uh, it's a little funny one there. But, uh, <laughs> so you had Ray Vincent? Oh, oh absolutely. All, really? Because well, you aspired to do what he had done? With 
what was it? He was the American King, Equity? I mean, American Equity right. Mortgage at the time. Yeah, when I was a loan officer, that was thriving in multiple states. And, and so you, know, you knew else. you wanted to be that. Absolutely. That was replaced after a few years with a uh, Quicken Loans um, race car. You know, <laughs> <laughs> This year was our first year um, sponsoring the Indy 500. So we're uh-huh. moving that direction now. Right. But let's. Uh, I'll try to stay on track. So, yeah, there we are two years in. I knew I had the platform. I was ready to go. I have 100 past clients. These were my original clients. I mean, these are people that I sat at their kitchen table and I did loans with them, like worked them up while they were making dinner, played wiffle ball with their kids in the backyard, waited for their spouse to come home, be like, I'm sorry, who are you and why are you in my house? And the husband or wife, oh, this is Ryan Kelly. He's some guy down the street has been talking to me about mortgages. We should get a new one. You know, you can imagine those conversations. Yeah. And But those clients are so close to me right now. And um, I used to always say, you know, if the mortgage business doesn't work out and we lose everything, we can always go live with one of our past clients because they love me and I love them and they're great. And without those past clients, we wouldn't be where we are today. So I knew I wanted to try radio and I sent a hundred emails out. It's the same email to a hundred of my clients. I said, I'm thinking about doing radio. What's your favorite station? What's your favorite show? And all 100 replied. And I kept all their replies and the tally and everything else that was going on at that time. We're Really sentimental, Matt. We collect everything. Mm. We're, we always joke we're going to open up a Home Loan Expert Museum someday. <laughs> you know, like We have a picture of a cardboard that went and someone's door jammed so that people didn't trip over the wires. So we walked over that cardboard for like two years. Like, That's the cardboard <laughs> from Bob's office. But anyhow, um, so I sent the email out. Everybody replies. Um, I, I, the, right at the top of that list at that time many years ago was 101 ESPN. And it was Bernie Michaelis' show. And so a lot of my past clients that I'd been doing loans from, whether that was knocking on doors or postcards, really enjoyed his show. So that started those conversations with Hubbard Radio many years ago, and um, it was to be ESPN. I spent a month Googling at night. So I'm still knocking on doors. I'm still doing postcards. I'm still trying to build this business 14 hours a day. And then I come home, and I'm Googling how to buy radio without getting ripped off. You know, what are the secrets about radio wow, that no one should know? Like, on I'm All kind right. of researching. I'm learning the game there. And um, I went into um, Hubbard Radio, negotiated this big deal. Well, at the time, it was the biggest deal of my life. It was about $42,000 for a year. 42000 for a year. Heck, I think we spend that a day sometimes. But that was <laughs> forty-two grand for a year. And that included Rams Radio, everything mm. back then. And um, when I went in there to sign that deal, I brought the money with me. And um, that money came, it's a good side note. I saved up probably about six grand. I went to my wife. I told her, I said, I need the 401k that you brought to the wedding, the marriage with us. At that time, she trusted me enough. She gave me that. It was about 14 grand. And then I took a second mortgage on my house in Richmond Heights. So I've been knocking on doors for a year or two. I'm mailing postcards. I liquidate my wife's 401. I take all the savings I had built up and I second mortgage my house. I go into Hubbard Radio. I do my first year contract with Rams and all of that. 42K, I bring the money with me. And they're like, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> like, here's the money. Let's sign the deal. I'm like, we'll bill you. I'm like, no, be it. Well, it's bullshit. I'm, if I'm going to yeah. sign it, I'm paying. Yeah. I don't want to hear from you for a year. Yeah. And um, one of the important things that I did that's proven to be so successful for us was I knew that I couldn't just go on with pre-recorded spots. At that time, you had the Vincent, the Golden Oak, kind of the old guard up there. They've been on the radio. They're the king of the airwaves. I knew I was the new guy coming in, and I knew going to just play, you know, 15-second, 30-second recorded. I wanted to go on live on the radio, and I wanted to talk with Bernie. So we negotiated that early on. That was part of the deal, and we signed the deal. I paid him the money. But it- So let me be clear on one thing here. At this point, financially for you and for Tracy, you're all in. All in. I mean, there's, there's not a net. 
No, not I would have been living with those past clients. Wow. There's there's no safety net. I told you, my dad was really tough, you know, and if you needed money, it was always the last place I went, you mm. know, and I got myself in some binds over the years growing up. I needed money, and I'd go to my dad, Dad, I need X amount of money, and I need it now. What the hell are you always mm. going to be when you need it now? And bro, I'm like, because you're the last person I've asked, man. I've asked everybody else. You're it, and I need it now. And, but you know, that was it. That was that was everything. And uh, if it would have fallen apart, it would have um, would have um, changed things quite a bit. But after we negotiated and paid it, it, the deal didn't start for a month because it started with the Rams. So I kind of almost forgotten about it. I'm back in mortgage world. I got to close loans yeah. and all this stuff. And then one day, the producer of his show, it was Michelle Small at the time, calls me up in the middle of the day. She goes, you ready to jump on with Bernie? I'm like, that's now? And she's like, right now. And I'm like, what am I going to do? She says, oh, you'll be fine. Here you go. I'm putting you in the queue. And that was our first live. Bernie came out. I got my good buddy, Ryan Kelly. I've, I've done Bernie's loan. I know Bernie. Uh -huh. And I've got Ryan. He's the greatest. He's the best. Ryan, you know, tell everybody about you. And I just started talking. And um, when I hung up that... Um, phone call, the lead started coming in. The phone started ringing. At that time, there was two of us. It was myself and Kyle Melvin. An old friend of mine had been to my wedding. He had worked for mortgage companies throughout the years, and he was with me. And um, I was knocking on the doors. I was doing the postcards. I was doing the acquisition. I was getting the deals, and he was processing them, working them up, and doing all of that. And when we hung up that first Bernie call, the phones just lit up. And we knew we were onto something at that point. We knew that um, we just had to figure it out. My big thing and when you talk to anybody, and I won't say I'm successful yet, we have a lot of work to do, but when you talk to anybody that's very successful in business, they can always point to some very critical moments, oh, yeah. some yep. key things, and a lot of those are timing. And, and that's it for me. It's a lot of timing and doing the right things at the right time. And for me, it was a new loan program that was new to the market that nobody was talking about. It was called HARP. And HARP gave us the ability to close loans without appraisals. And nobody was doing them. And nobody was talking about it. And that was, with, that was my first radio spot. Hi, I'm Ryan Kelly, St. Louis's home loan expert. Have you recently tried to refinance or buy a house but been told no because they said your house wouldn't appraise high enough? That's crazy. I close loans without appraisals. TheHomeLoanExpert.com. And that's what the message is. And that's what people needed to hear. And when they heard that, those phones rang. Because mm. this was at a time when homes were losing value like crazy and people were stuck in bad loans and they were trying to refinance out of them but they couldn't because their house wasn't worth 250 anymore it was worth 130 you know so they were stuck then harp came no appraisal refi the houses get them get them fixed up but nobody was doing it yet so that was one of my first radio spots was i close loans without appraisals call me now and that's what really drove when that did in. harp start do you recall a year i don't but if you go back um yeah uh, yeah i think that's about okay. right 10 11 yeah. you're right in there and um, we were off and running, and um, it was huge, and it was fun, and it was exciting. Why do you think your spot worked? I mean, heart being one factor. I, I mean, I and just being live on the radio, nobody was doing that. Right, but your personality and your energy, like, you know, it's it, not, we don't do a whole lot of live call-ins on, on TMA, um, but anytime they're like, Ryan Kelly's on the line, it's not like I'm like, oh, crap, Ryan Kelly's. I'm like, this is going to be entertaining. You know, it's going to be like a conversation. Yeah, it's a commercial, but it's not going to be like a – you know, let me tell you about this. They're three and a quarter this week. And, you know, we th you know, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's, it's energy. It, it's genuine. I think the charisma, were you like that from the get go with Bernie or were you like nervous? Oh, I, 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 I was a little nervous. I would type out my 60 second scripts and I'd read them. Shit, no. uh, I don't even look at a clock anymore. <laughs> but, um, I remember the rally squirrel once was a big deal. And I the wrote oh, the, the rally squirrel. squirrel and I wrote a thing. Um, I was walking out my house this morning, getting ready to come to the office. Yeah. And I see this squirrel and he's in my trash can. And 
I pick up a newspaper and I'm going to throw it at the squirrel, but then I'm thinking, oh, that could be the Raleigh squirrel. I better let that squirrel just tear up my trash can and keep going. Like, it was just coming on, being on the radio. You know, the old guard wasn't. They were doing the prepaid stuff or the pre-recorded stuff and just jumping in segment and, you know, having, yeah. you know, the personality. Absolutely. And I knew that that was the right move. That's another mark when you could look at it, negotiating that first deal at Hubbard insisting to get on the radio, insisting on the call-ins. Why did you, why did you do that? Was that from your research that said it would I be I just the knew it would separate me from yeah. what everybody else was that's doing. A, that's a shrewd play there. Here's to a, know that on your own is really shrewd. Here's how you know it's working. That first six months or so with Hubbard, I probably had two or three recorded spots, like two or three a week, 15-second recorded spots, and one or two lives. And Hubbard was getting overwhelmed with hate mail and email and phone calls. Get this obnoxious guy off the radio. I'll never listen to your shows again. I'm tuning off 101 forever. Like, they were getting bombarded. Like, you've oversold him. He's on all day. I can't listen to it. And they just reply, like, he's only on three times a week. Like, and that's when I knew it was working. You know, I had to kind of be loud and obnoxious (laughs) and do all those things. But it was working when people were like, I can't handle him anymore. And they're like, he's only on three times a week. So, uh, tip of the cat, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I knew we were doing, after the, uh, about a year or so there, we were ready, you know, to to try again, to add another station. Now, are things comfortable now for you? Yeah, they're never really comfortable for me because I'm a growth president. Yeah, I, no, I don't I, have to I get what you're president, saying, but, but I mean, you had leveraged everything, Tracy's 401k, the second mortgage, all of your savings. You're all we're in making money with one on. Okay, so yeah. We're profitable. We're doing decent. You know, I think that's all relative. Um I wasn't behind on bills anymore. We had some money in the coffers. And for me, that means it's time to invest and keep growing. And um, shame on me, I should know this. And I'm not going to go through all the radio stations because we'll, we'll be here for a two, couple of days. But um, it was either, I think I believe it was 590 or 97.1 were my second. You guys were within a week of each other. Oh, really? So I added two right out of the gate. Yeah. I'm going to find out. I want to bet that it was 590, but I would... I would hate for um, Craig Lombardi to call and start screaming at me. So, <laughs> But anyhow, we took on our second and third radio station pretty quick. The 591 is the one that's the story because that's a great one. I believe that they were they were second because going back to my memory, thinking about your father and I and those tough negotiations with your daddy, <laughs> it was around Christmas time, and it was my second station. Now I remember I was in my car, and it was like Christmas Eve, and I had just gotten home from work. And I'm on the phone with your dad, and he's in Hilton Head Classic, right? Um, (laughs) And he's telling me, listen, you got this great thing going with Bernie. You got all this going on. You're killing the game there or whatever. You know, you're doing great. But you don't own anything. You need some ownership of a show. And that's what I've got for you, Ryan, the morning after. Mm. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. He's like, you got to do it. You need the ownership. You got to do it. And I think um, after about two weeks of those calls, that Christmas Eve, sitting there in my Jeep, I remember it seen my wife and my two kids inside and i'm still in the car talking to your dad i go fine i'll do it and he's like thank god was this a mercy yeah. vibe? Is that what goes, idt's out i don't want to say anything you're taking the spot without you there might not be a show so thanks from everybody on the show i'm like well there's that and um and that was the 590 and um it's um been a great ride ever yeah. since but that well, had to be too it had to be like 2010 2010 or 11 one it, or the other. it was back there and yeah. um it proves you know in my business sometimes i make a bad deal now and this Sometimes you know that you have a good deal, and the good deals, although they're they're great, they're profitable, they're this, they always try to wash out the bad ones, yeah. you know. And yeah. and 590 has been an incredible relationship for myself, for my company. 590, and all the listeners have been um, they've been huge in our success. Without all the listeners 
of the morning after, we would not be where we are today. So, and you followed us from because we were only on 590, I think, through like April 2013. Well, we left to start 920, and you followed us. The listeners obviously follow, and uh, and then you've been with us. Like I said, I guess we're talking about seven years, give or take, you know, yes. which is which is really saying something. And I and when we talk about the show, I say the Ryan Kelly morning after, and when national outlets pick up something from our show. They assume that the person hosting it must be Ryan Kelly because they don't know necessarily that it's the title sponsor. But that's how synonymous you are with the show. Give them some time. They'll know. <laughs> I, um, I'll tell you, oh, gosh, I, I've kind of I, I, you're the 590 deal is one of the only deals I still negotiate. There it is. Um, we have marketing. You know, it's all in-house. All of our marketing, production, everything is in-house. That's mm. a big key to success. Own your content. Produce your own content. Don't rely on other people. So we if have. If I had a bell, I would do the bell ring right ding, there. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, yeah. we produce all of our own radio, TV, digital, web, everything in house. So really, I'm managing that whole beast as well. But um, going back to it, the 590 is the deal that I still negotiate with you, Tim. And um, April's taken over everything else at mm. this point. But it's usually over a text, you know, right, or maybe right. a beer, uh, usually right. a text message. And I can remember you coming to me and saying, hey, we're moving over to 920. And some of the advertisers might not be on board. I want to make sure you are. And my response was, just tell me where you want me to mail the check. God bless. And I remember when you moved back to Five Night, just tell me where you want me to mail the check. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's one that I value, and um, it's one that I still negotiate. And a lot of that's just done over text messages. It's yeah. not a, a kicking and screaming deal. So there we are in St. Louis. I'll kind of get that um, story So, yeah, so you're with us. You're, you're with Bernie. Then you're with us. And with, with 97, 97 one, I guess one, Dana, Dana Lash. Oh, Dana Lash. Okay, Dana I didn't know that. All right. There. Okay. Dana's a great girl. I've known her for a long time. And um, I think, so I'd go 101, 590, and then 97.1. And we're going to start putting them, stop putting them in order at this point. But right. just to show how early on and how important the 590 was to our success. Oh, Ryan Kelly is presented by... Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. I don't know about you, but from my standpoint, I have a major regret about how I managed my money in my 20s and 30s. I'm almost embarrassed by it, but there is someone who can help you. It doesn't matter if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies is the guy. I met with Mark and was thinking that it would be good to have a new sponsor on the podcast, but anytime I'm going to talk about somebody and associate them with the show I'm involved in, I want to find out if he knows what he's talking about. And sure enough, after talking to him, and really in the middle of talking to him, I knew uh, that this guy certainly does indeed know what he's talking about. And I was saying to myself, I wish I would have known Mark 20 years ago because I would be in a different position now managing my money smartly then. And that is the key that people don't think about when it comes to managing money. And it's so important. I sat with Mark. He opened his iPad. He entered the dollar figures be your 401k, it could be your savings, it could be for your investments, and he puts you and your family on the right path for what you want. He helps people every day, and he helps everyday people build a strategy to get to their financial goals. He helps build a strategy to put your kids through college, to keep you from having to work until you're 95 years old, to not get blasted on taxes, and make sure your family is taken care of in case the unthinkable happens. His name is is Mark Hanna. Give him a call at 314-889-0503. That's 314-889-0503. Or check him out online at evergreenstl.com. He is our guest sponsor here on the Tim McKernan Show. Now, back to Ryan Kelly.
And we're moving along and we're hiring probably at about, I don't know, eight to 10 um, on my team at that point. And those were exciting times for us. I mean, we're cracking beers at the office at 6 p.m. We're breaking records. We're in uncharted waters. We know we're taking a big chunk of the loans out of St. Louis at that point. Um, We know we were doing well. The brand was growing. I'm a big brand builder. Also, money is made in brands, not in businesses. The brand's important, and I knew that. And um, so I was really promoting the Home Loan Expert brand heavy. And we wanted to try another market. We wanted a second city. We knew that what we were doing in St. Louis was overwhelmingly blowing up. It was just successful. And, but we wanted to try it somewhere else. And our natural progression was over to Kansas, Kansas City. If you look at a lot of the, you know, St. Louis, whether they're mortgage banks, whatever they are, that progression is very easy in the Kansas City marketplace. About the same size city. You know, if you ask someone from Kansas City, they're definitely better than St. Louis. If you ask someone from St. Louis, they're better than Kansas City. But they're, they they smell about the same. They're about mm. the same. Replace um, replace Edward Jones with Sprint, you know, just move some pieces around you. You almost have the same cities here, right, in the Midwest. So we were moving along that direction, ready to go into our second market. And then one night, I, um, I wake up in the middle of the night. Why are we doing Kansas City? This is crazy. Let's do something tough. Let's do Chicago. And I, I'm not a big guy. I don't so make, literally you wake up in the middle of the night and that's never that went back to bed. I do that all the time. Yeah. I wake really? up. It doesn't matter if it's one, two, you four like write in the morning. something down when you wake up in the morning. I wake up and I start it? working it. Yeah. I write some notes down, but really I'm a dreamer. There's another one. I'm a dreamer. I didn't know all these things about me until recent years. Certain people start to pull back layers of what I've achieved and they're telling me things, but I am a dreamer. I, I, I'm not thinking at night. I'm not working today for tomorrow. I'm five years ahead of everybody already. So I dream when I lay down at night, I lay down and I think about what I look like in five years, what I'm doing in five years, what the company's doing in five years. And the next morning I start getting there. And so I'm a big dreamer, you know, and people ask, did you ever think you'd be this big? I dreamt to be bigger. You know, I, I can remember when I lived in Richmond Heights, you know, and still sending postcards out, you know, jogging and dreaming about being on Oprah one day and me jumping on the couch like Tom Cruise. I'm like, the number one mortgage yeah. guy in the nation's here, you know, like, yeah. so I'm a big dreamer. And um, that's really helped with the success of our company. So, but now, That's interesting. You call it dreaming because something you're saying right now kind of resonates with me because I guess people listening to this, even though I'm, I'll, I'll be the one to say it, even though I know it sounds awful, but it's better for me to say it than for you to say it, would consider us successful uh, in our respective little worlds. But in, I'm not surprised that I'm successful. And I'm not saying that, and I know that also sounds hideous, but I'm trying to be as honest as, as possible. But it's not because I'm like, I'm so good at anything. It's just because I always kind of expected it because I knew what I wanted to do and I believed it was going to work. And so even if somebody said, like when I left television, they're like, what the hell are you doing? Nobody leaves TV. And I'm like, oh, I think this is where it's going. I think TV's dying. Local TV news is dying. And so when I interviewed Mike Bush, he was sitting in that right chair there he goes how did you know and i go really how did you not know and that's mike bush you know i mean it just seems so obvious to me so if you're thinking and believing that this is going to happen not as if like you're fantasizing but you believe it's going to happen then i guess it makes it easier to get there because you're already visualizing how you're going to get there is that is that an accurate perception of how you built what you built absolutely and um just Knowing I can get there. And, you know, I'm a big adversity guy. I know you have to fail multiple times. And we'll get to some more pivoting moments that have happened over the years. But um, I, I would have dreamt that I'd been further along by now. So in my mind, I'm not successful yet. I haven't gotten there. And now it's on my mind is exit strategy, what it looks like in five, 10 years from now. How do I, um, how do I um, make my next play? Mm-hmm. But 
um, without dreaming it, without thinking it, and then putting those actions into place, you know, I'd still be back working for somebody else, you know, doing all that and stuff. And so I assume a number of people along the way, I mean, you mentioned kind of that defining moment when you walk away, Tracy's pregnant, and you're doing this all on your own. I'm sure a number of people going, what in the hell are you doing? Oh, yeah. Everybody but my wife. <laughs> on the record. Everybody but my wife. <laughs> uh, my, my sister took me to the old macaroni grill. I remember sitting there with her like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Go back. Tell me what your job back. Tell them you're on drugs or something. You don't know what you're doing. I'm like, oh, I'm gone. It's oh like, but Tracy's pregnant. You know, I can do it better. Oh. So wake up middle of the night, Chicago. We had some resources in the city already. So we, um, I don't make a lot of decisions on my own. People that work with me know we're a team. And that's one of the unique things about us. We all work together. We are a team. You can't touch the culture at my office. Nobody can. I have people in the lending industry, people that own banks, people that I talk to occasionally and they say, even if I can beat you in rates, which they can't, even if I can beat you in closing costs, which they can't, even if I can beat you everywhere, I can never get the culture you have at your office. My guys come and go so quick, I can't keep track of my employees, and that's not my. Yeah, that is true. Not it's like the same us. people there. I, I never even really thought about that, but you're right. Nobody leaves, really. I mean, and a handful of people is. have left because they just come to me and they're usually crying when they leave. I'm not kidding. They cry and they say, "I I want to be here more than anything," but. XYZ, I got to go do something else. I have to, you know, I got to be at home or I need more of a nine to fiver. I need whatever it is. I, I, I believe in you. You're going to go all the way. I, in fact, can I still play on your softball team? Can I do all these great things? You guys are my friends, you're my family, but this isn't for me. So we've had a few people leave, but um, it's a, it's an emotional thing when people leave our team, but nobody does leave. You yeah. know, everybody takes pride of that at my office. Everybody knows their number. You know, I was number one. I was never, no, I was not number one. I have no number, but everybody knows. Yeah. That top 10 number, one through 10, they, they wear that on their shirt at the yeah. office. Like, I'm in the top 10, and then you have the top 20, 30, and so on. Right. And the top 20 will be very valuable in a few more years. I always reassure them, like, just hold Pat. That, yeah. that top 30 will be really valuable, yeah. so don't you worry. Yeah. Um, so I come in, and I don't make these decisions on my own. I sit down with my team of 8 or 10 at the time. I go, I woke up in the middle of the night, like, we can tell you're still in pajamas. I'm like, <laughs> get a whiteboard out. We wheel it in. I said, forget Kansas. Forget Kansas City. Let's talk Chicago. And everybody perks up. Chicago, oh, that's sexy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Let's put the pros and the cons. And the pros were really quick out of the out of the gate. You know, it's like 7 million people in Chicagoland. Wow, that's a lot of people to talk mortgages to. Okay, there's a good one. Um, loan value should be higher. Great. We're going to get bigger loans. Good. Uh, what else is there? Okay, let's look at the cons. And then it just rapid fired yeah. out. Um, two of the last three governors are in prison. Everybody has a guard up. You know, they don't yeah. trust people. Getting home values in Chicago is tough. If you think it's hard to kind of get an idea of what your house is worth in Kirkwood, go up to Chicago where you have a $200,000 house next to a $2 million house next to a vacant lot next to a shack next to a $4 million. It's just it's very tough. And we just started listing out all the cons. And everybody's like, yeah, it was a good idea, right? I'm like, no, no, no. It is where we're going. And let me tell you why. All those cons, all those reasons why it's going to be so tough. We know we have something special here as St. Louis's home loan expert. And if that can work in Chicago, mm -hmm. it can work anywhere, anywhere at all. If we can make it work there, it can go work anywhere. Chicago is one of the toughest um, markets for the mortgage industry and auto dealers. Auto dealers and mortgage guys, it's the most cutthroat um, businesses in that city. It's very tough. But that's why we chose it. That's why we're still in Chicago. That's why we, it's not because Chicago's the most profitable market, it's our lowest. You know, it's not because the return on investment is so great that we're there. We're there just because it keeps us tough. It keeps mm -hmm. us going to keep Chicago going and alive. So Chicago is our second market, and um, I won't get into all the stations. But, but do, Yeah, so you employ a radio strategy. I mean, radio is Absolutely. Same thing. We followed suit that we did in St. Louis. 
we slow play it into the city, but we don't let them know we're just coming into the city. And by slow play, I mean, you know, if you think of our St. Louis model, first station, second, third, right. and so on, it's not because we, it was a strategy. It's just there was no money for that. And when we went into Chicago, it was the same thing. We had just enough money to go on one radio station yeah. in the Chicago market. We beat, we beat up really bad the score in ESPN 1000. We got their two final best offers. We chose the score. And we were up and running Chicago. And I can remember all the phone calls would come into the St. Louis office. We'd work up the loans, try to set the appointments, do all those things. And I'd get my car and I'd drive up there. And I can remember sign up our first loan up there. I know the, I know his name. I won't get into all that. But <laughs> it was a tough one that took a while. It wasn't our first closed loan in Chicago. It was our first signed up loan in Chicago. And um, I used to take those trips and um, go up there one day a week. I'd leave my house at 4 or 5 in the morning, get up there by 10, sign up loans all day, get my car and drive right back. And come back and drop the files on the desk. And that's how Chicago did. And I made those trips up there for um, out of the first six, eight months of being in the Chicago market. And then one of my loan officers then took over those trips, ended up moving there and all of that. So Chicago is moving. It's set up. I mean, we do a lot of marketing in the Chicago place, Cubs, White Sox, Bulls, um, the score, ESPN. We do PPC. We um, do a lot of, um, we do a lot of giving back, but I want to hold that to the end. Uh, we do um, a lot of uh, Little League, Lincoln Park baseball teams, yeah. just all kinds of cool stuff in Chicago. I'm up there quite a bit. I know I'm missing some fun stuff, but we do a lot in that Chicago. Indy was our third market, you know, so Indianapolis. And why did you decide on Indianapolis? And kind of in my mind, as silly as this sounds, it kind of made this little triangle, right? St. Louis up to Chicago, back yeah. down to Indy across the St. Louis yeah. and kind of secured it. It was also about two and a half hours from Chicago. Good, good, yeah. good way to run trips, getting in the car, driving up there, signing up all the loans, meet with the people face to face. And it's also a, um, and he's also a very fast growing city. Yeah. And it's a, it's a big market up there where it's recruiting a lot of people out of colleges to come work for big companies in Indianapolis. So it's growing like crazy. One thing Indianapolis did, as Nashville and some of the other cities we'll talk about, they merged their city and county. Something that you did a podcast on it already. I won't get into it. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to hear my views on that really, but. Something St. Louis has failed to do, and they've made some attempts and just get shot down. But Indy successfully did it, and so did Nashville. They merged those city and counties. They got rid of that false line. You know, in St. Louis, let's go somewhere close on the border. You have the rec Richmond Heights, right, rec center. You have indoor pools, basketball courts. You have workout facilities that, heck, a major league team could go play out, you know, work out in. You have all these great things. Now, grow cross over to that city line just a couple miles, and they don't have anything. Yeah. They have nothing. They don't have the workout equipment was donated in the 70s. It's all orange. There's a Notre track that doesn't work. It's just like, it's, it just doesn't work. And then when you try to bring a soccer team to the city of St. Louis, and you're asking the people that live in the city of St. Louis to vote for that soccer team, there's not a, there's not a single chance that's ever going to pass. You know, they don't have cops down there. They don't have anything down there. But you want them to do a soccer, they don't see that as a benefit. And until St. Louis gets rid of that imaginary line, I guess it's not imaginary, it's a real line. Yeah and combines that city and county into just St. Louis, we're always going to be some trailing behind some of those other towns. And Indy is one of those cities, a great example, that merged the city and the county, built the big stadium down there, paved the streets in gold, put cafes out there, county dollars help city, then city blows up, and it helps county. Yeah. And it's, Indianapolis is an incredible city. It's growing. It's at about $1.7 give or take. Um, but we picked up the ESPN affiliate, the fan there. We went over to Conservative Talk Radio in Indy. The Pacers in Indy are gold to me. It's one of my best relationships with the with the sports team is the Pacers. Huh. They love the Pacers. You want? I mean, we love the Cardinals in St. Louis. We're born and raised on them. They're bigger Take, Pacers than they are Colts. 
Um, I would say so. Absolutely. Wow. I've had better. I've, I've sponsored both. Um, well, basketball is huge in Indiana. I just the, didn't know it that really is. The Pacers than have more followers, I think, on Twitter and social media than even the Cardinals would in St. Louis. I mean, it's just a really big thing. Wow. They love they love their basketball. Like now we're in Alabama, Birmingham. They love their football. Oh, they yeah. talk football 12 months a year oh. on Sports Talk Radio. Yeah. Maybe they'll give you a little taste of the Braves, but not even really. It's yeah. just all football. Yeah. So Indy was um, Indy was a success. It started moving along. We planted our flag there. It's one of our best markets. We really love Indianapolis. And um, we slowed down there um, for a minute, just focused on those three. Went through some more adversity and some other things with the company and the growth and, and all of that. Then we picked up Nashville. Tennessee was our fourth market. And I shouldn't label these the cities because we do the entire states. Right. But Nashville is where we put our flag, build an office, and all of that. And then from Alabama, we um, and we do a lot down there. I'm going to keep naming them all if you like. Right. But uh, we went down to Birmingham, Alabama. Why wouldn't we be there? That's the that's the hot seat of the SEC, Birmingham. You know, so that just makes sense for yeah. us to be down there. Is where we started this Big Ten path, and we've shifted gears, and now we're, we're I'm doing the whole SEC footprint yeah. now. Yeah. That's my plan of growth as I'm locking down the SEC. I just got Kentucky, Texas on the way, so we're filling in the states as we speak now for the full SEC. It makes expansion for the home loan expert a little easier. You don't have to go into each city and say, okay, who are the sports talk stations? Who's conservative talk stations? Let's start interviewing. Let's start talking. Let's start negotiating. It's one check. It's SEC. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we're, we're filling that blueprint, and that's our growth strategy. There you go. I gave it. I'll tell all my secrets to the competition. <laughs> I don't care because <laughs> dare them to try to keep up. <laughs> um, so we'll go SEC. Then we'll probably come back to that Big Ten and, f- you know, fill that up and before westward. But here we are today, you know, and um, – and we're in um, all those markets and all those states. Texas is our next one. It's a big one. Um, my um, my CFO and our marketing director, April, hopes that Texas will satisfy me for a while and I can <laughs> slow down. You know, I feel bad for her sometimes. I'm big into growth. There's another one. I don't get comfortable. I have a, um, here's a quick story on that. I have a piece of property up in the country where my wife's from. Uh-huh. And it was a unique time. We were going along five years ago and I thought, Hey, I'd like to have a condo at the lake. That's where all the cool people go. You know, I'd like to have a condo there. And and I was trying to sell that to my wife. Let's get a condo at the lake of the Ozarks. That's where all the cools are. That's the fun place. Let's go. And she goes, you remember when we were dating? You tell me about um, when you were younger, you'd go to all your friends' parents' houses at the lake, and you'd party all night and all those horrible things. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, and that's why we're not going to get a place at the lake because that's what your kids will be doing. And fair enough. Yeah. So we had the opportunity in the small town where my wife is from, which is the Quad Cities. It's about an hour and a half north of Peoria on the Mississippi River. Davenport's on one side. Molina played up there. Chris Duncan played up there. Yeah. They actually lived together while they, they were there. I know some cool stories about the uh, the brawl and um, the minor league brawl oh, up yeah. in Peoria, but um, that's where she's from. So the neighbor's house from her parents, you know, she her parents still have that same house on the Mississippi River there with an acre of grass in between their house and the river. And the neighbors came on the market, and I bought that one. It had more land and everything else. So I'm like, let's let's buy that. And that's my my therapy. That's my getaway. Is I go up there quite a bit. In fact, after the timber fake fight, which I'm sure will come up, that's where I went and hid for a few days. And oh, yeah. I kind of decompress, and yeah. I can get on a riding mower up there for eight hours, a tractor, and just not even think about loans. And that's the only place I've found that I can do that. So um, got, the, uh, got the house up there in the, in the Quad Cities. We use that now as a you know training and pivot spots. I'm not sure how I got onto my Quad City story, but— um, Maybe I was talking about decompressing or something, but that's another part of my secret is well, though you're talking about growth and not necessarily being satisfied, and because that's one of the things from my standpoint. I think this is where we differ, not that necessarily satisfaction, because I'm always telling everybody I want to do another show and I want to do obviously a podcast, got the radio thing, 
quote unquote don't need to, but always want to be building. That's right. I get that, but at the same time, I want to enjoy it. For me, I like to go down to Jupiter Palm Beach Gardens. That's you know to get out of the weather here in St. Louis in the winter. That is where I am, and our son is young enough that we have at least a few years where we ideally can do that. Who knows if we'll be able to do it next year? But we're hoping to. Um, for you, it's going to that place in Quad Cities. And correct? Here, yes, and here's and here's another. This is where I was going. There's a restaurant up there. It's almost a truck stop without the trucks. It's uh, it's a diner, for lack of better words. And it's called Brothers. Brothers Restaurant. It's on block from my house. I cross the railroad track, cross an acre or two of land, and I'm there. And um, it's a, it's always busy. It's always busy. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's nothing fancy. I mean, I get country fried steak there. It's my favorite in the world. But yeah. um, if they put some sunny-side-up eggs on top, it's even better. But <laughs> I go in there, and, I, and, the, and the dad's there working the register, and his kids are working the, you know, the whole thing. And the place is always packed. When I walk in there, I think, why doesn't he have 10? Why doesn't he have 10 of these locations? And, but he has the mindset. He has one very successful location. His family works there. They go to college and school to get you know, a better life. So it's just a different thinking. I'm a growth guy, and right. I walk into a place. I'm like, "This is great. You need ten of these. Let's get that going." But a different, equally successful person would look at that and say, "This is giving my family everything I need." Yeah. And I was telling that story because of April. I was there every time we kind of get our feet on the ground, and we're like, "Okay, we don't have to worry about the money right now. We don't have to worry about anything." I pick up another state. Yeah, I gotta yeah. get another state yeah. real quick. So. April's really hoping that Texas satisfies but, but, that but I a think little bit. Part of the deal, I remember Frank Cusimano did this story, and it, I think he was, I mean, he would, I've never even talked to him about it. It wasn't like some signature moment, but he was talking about Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan. This is back, so we're going back to like the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, why they were the best. And one of the traits that was consistent with them psychologically is never under any circumstances being satisfied, always needing more. You know, and now Jordan, obviously, is not playing basketball, but you hear all these stories about how he's playing golf, like, obsessively. And even though I don't believe he's anything special on the golf course, uh, not like he's terrible, but he's just not like a scratch golf or anything, uh, he's out there playing every day, I believe, building his own course in Jupiter now because he's irritated with the Bears club and, uh, and, and has to always be doing something to always be growing. And in one way, you respect it because it's made him to be one of the greatest ever. $100 million a year last year he made. God the bless him, he's not even playing. And then on the other side, you go, God, I wonder when he gets to enjoy it. I guess he does get to enjoy it, but you never really stop. Do you think you're going to ever come to a point where you're going to go, okay, that was, that was great. I've done it. Now I will relax. That's not possible? No, I uh, always diagnosed at an early age I have um, attention deficit disorder and hyperactivity, so ADHD, maybe I'm mixing the letters up somewhere, and we didn't really know a lot. I'm 42 now, so back when I was diagnosed with this, it was new to the street. Ritalin was brand new, you know, and, and that was kind of my parents' way of doing it. It's like, oh, give them this Ritalin. That's what the doctors are saying. It will calm them down, but it didn't really work for me. I didn't realize how to channel my energy, and now those are blessings. That You know, when I was younger, I was cursed, right? I had these horrible deficiencies or problems or you know, but now I've channeled that and I'm not one to sit still. I'm not one to get comfortable. I always keep moving. I'm out of bed very early in the morning. Yeah. what I mean, like cause we'll be doing a show from your place and you'll come rolling in there and you'd already worked out for an hour. <laughs> I think that's uh, here's a here's a kind of what my days look like. A lot of people are, you know, at least they pretend they're and you know, interested in that when they see me. Um, I'll lay out the next 48 hours for you. How's that? Yeah, I think this it. will be pretty interesting yeah. to give everybody kind of an idea of what my days look like. Um, but I do wake up early. I have a hard time sleeping in past 5 a.m. And it doesn't matter 
if I was out late the night before, if I hadn't slept in two days, I still am a 5 a.m. riser. And that kind of affects with my sleep. And, you know, a lot. So no matter what, you're up at five. five you set an alarm or you just get up? I haven't been alarmed in years. So it's auto, it's like an automatic thing. I'm up at five. My wow. mind starts working. That mind starts racing and I'm out of bed yeah. and I have to get going. And um, I usually start the day off with a workout and um, and move on from there. I have to burn calories in the morning. If I do not work out, and I will get to my next two days, but let me give you this generic day here. So I wake up 5, 5.30. I'm in the gym before 6. I'm working out. I'm rowing. I'm sweating. I'm lifting. I'm not a big guy, but I stay in fit. I stay in shape, try to stay fit. Um, and then um, I get out of the gym about 7, 7.15. And by then, my kids are having breakfast with my wife in the kitchen. I go down. I have breakfast with the kids. I get my 20 minutes, lock them in there, talk about their day. And then I hit the showers. And I try to get out of my house by 8 a.m. and get into the office then from 8, 8.30 till 6.37 every day, I'm in the office. And so there's a good 10 to 11 hours spent in the office. Then I go home and I try to get that hour with the kids. It's books, prayers, and bed. And I'm, I get those and put those kids to bed. And by then it's about nine. And then I'm four more hours of work generally where, you know, my wife and I can sit and she'll have her computer and all mine will be yelling back and forth. Did you call the exterminator? No, <laughs> I know. And we work kind of like that and get caught up. And I try to Get in bed by about 11, sleep by 11.30 or so. If I can get that five hours of sleep, I'm good. You're good. Six is about my max, and I'm really good at six. I, I can record 80 commercials the next day if I get six hours of sleep. Really? Um, but some days I don't get the full five or six, and I get below that five. And when those days start stacking, I just become crap. I'm just garbage then. When I can go three, four days with only four hours of sleep, I just I almost crash mm -hmm. on those days. But if I can get that five, I'm good. So here, see if you can keep up with me. In the next 48 hours— um, I leave for Nashville tomorrow morning. I'll probably be wheels up early morning, sun up. I'm out of here and jump on the plane, fly down to Nashville. I don't have the full itinerary, but over the course of that 48 hours, two days in Nashville, I am um, I'm going to sign up loans down there, of course. Why wouldn't I? I'll meet with some clients. I'll sign up, I think, seven deals. So I'll meet yeah. with seven potential or clients, future clients, sign up loans. I will go um, and meet with um, the heads of Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. And I'll tour the facility with the heads of that hospital. And then I'll do a big live there to try to promote that brand and awareness for my client for the kids. Then I'll also do that with Terry Marlin and Fight DMD and his two boys at his house, a big live. Um, I will take Terry Marlin then to three radio stations throughout the Nashville area over the two days and do full segments with him so he can tell his story. I meet with Clay Travis down there. We'll be talking about our future deals and what's, what the next year looks like with the two of us. And I'll be doing a lot of Hero Loan videos, commercial stuff down there. So that's the next two days. And um, both of those days will be 18-hour days in Nashville. Of Not one thing can fall out of place, really. Well, they all will. But it's my right. job to get them back online and keep right. that train. Because if something derails and it all falls apart, then I'm back in the office. You know, I fly back in late Wednesday night, Thursday morning. I'm shooting TV, you know, for the Cardinals with um, the cat and, you know, Danny Mack and everybody else. Right. And that's my Thursday. And then on Friday, right. they're just my—I I work hard. I work— um, I bump a lot and I tow like most business owners do. And even non-business owners, you know, um, we tow that fine line of too much work, not enough family. And um, I walk that like a tight wire. When is when does more time need to be allocated over to family? When when does, you know, I need to get an extra baseball game with my son? When do I need to be home a little bit early for my wife so she can go do something? And I walk that, that fine line very, very tight. But um, right now, my wife gets it. I need to be building the business. I need to be building the brand. That's where my passion is. Her father worked three jobs, and he was never home for dinner. You know, he was home before the bedtime. Yeah. So 
she doesn't expect me to be there like, you know, the perfect little movies where I'll be sitting and having dinner at six o'clock at night. Just it doesn't work. I'm I'm embedded in work. And um, my goal is, you know, to. Um, so are you at the office? You're at the office still at that point? Or are you like back up at your house and working at home? I work from home yeah. in the evenings. Yeah. So if you look at a normal week, I'm four days a week in the office, 10, 12 hours a day, and then one 20 hour day when I'm on the road. This wow. week, I just have two 20 hour days. And by a 20-hour day, I mean, I'm out of bed at 4 a.m., and I'm not back in bed till midnight that night. And I've usually been to Birmingham that day, maybe even Tennessee, and moved around a lot, done radio, TV, meetings, signed up loans. You get it. And then, of course, again, I'm trying not to talk about the charitable giving back because I want to end with that because that's my passion. Right. And, and maybe someone's in their mind right now is thinking, why does he do all this? You know, when's enough enough? And I do all this so that one point I can use this brand, the Homeland Expert brand, to raise money for children in need. And that's my real passion. We joke at the Homeland Expert Office, we just do the loans to pay the bills. What we really love to do is give back. And that's not just something I say. That's something that's more important to me than almost anything well, out there. So I, I talk about it sometimes when I'm doing the endorsements on this podcast, and we'll talk about it on the, on the Ryan Kelly morning after. And that is, and, and I'm not by any means, I hope it doesn't come off, um, is like one form of charity is better than another. I mean, God bless to whomever is donating money or time and everybody's uh, ability to donate and the size of those donations and or time are relative. But first off, you don't need to do it, number one. Secondarily, you could just write checks and, you know, that could be that. But this is this is a real thing. Again, this is another thing that Ryan and I have talked about, you know, on the phone when it's just me and him talking and not, uh, you know, a, a show. It's so important to you to also do it like the climb for the kids. Fourth year coming up, you know, of, of putting yourself out there, of going and climbing mountains. I mean, but you do that because it's that important to you. So let me start here. Why is it that important to you? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a fair question. Let's back up um, five, six years ago. I'm not mailing postcards. I probably have your show, Timmy, and a few others going. There is money there. You know, I, that's relative. Um, but there was money in the savings account, which I hadn't had. And I don't know if I have any now. But I had some <laughs> at that time. And one of my mentors in life, you always there's another one. You need a good mentor. You yeah. need somebody you can talk to, somebody that will coach you, somebody that will share ideas with you and everything else. And my good mentor, John Gatewood, and he still is my mentor. He's kind of another one of my secret weapons. He picked me up for a Cardinal game. And when John Gatewood says he's going to take you to a Cardinal game, you go. I mean, he's got green seats, like row one. I've been one. lucky enough to sit with him at a Cardinal <laughs> game. I know the program there. You go to one. Of, you yeah. go to John's games with John. Yeah. And um, he came and he picked me up. And I'm a pretty observant person. I, I look over on a steering wheel, and there's a little yellow post, and it says RKMW5K. And I, I knew what that meant. RK, make a wish, 5000 And he said, Ryan, you're doing well now. John Gatewood manages all my money, full disclosure. I make it. He manages it. If I'm going to buy something, I ask him. And um, he said, you're making some money now. You have some savings. You're not check to check anymore. It's time to really start giving back now. And he gave me his speech about that and how important it was. And it's kind of half listening because I'm still thinking 5K to make a wish. Holy cow. I'd never done anything like that. You know, I'd put it in the in the you know, Christmas time in the red kettles, you know, I do my right. own part, but you know, nothing major like this. 5,000 was five right. grand to Absolutely. me. And, um, and I, and he said, now I'll take the check. So I gave him a check and he said, now you need to go out and you need to find organizations that are close to your heart that you can always stand by and you can raise money for them. So I do everything John says. And I did exactly that. I went out there and I got 
tied in and what really melted my heart were the sick kids. I'm, um, I'm amazed by how strong these kids are and how much, you know, adversity they go through and how they can still be smiling. So I, um, through your station, was really partnered up with Friends of Kids with Cancer yeah. many years ago. Yeah, and that's the relationship. Off those, those toys, man. Unbelievable, that was. And we've grown on, you know, others besides Friends of Kids, but that was kind of Make a Wish Friends and uh, Cardinal Glennon Hospital. And then I think most folks know that, you know, if I wasn't in the mortgage business right now, I'd be a cop. You know, I'd be a first responder. I, um, I have so much respect for what those men and women do every single day, putting on those uniforms and going out there to keep us safe. And they do it for little money, and they just get their headline after headline, spit in their face, everything else. I think most people know I'm a big fan, big supporter of all police things. And um, so, obviously, guns and hoses, backstopper. So, I'm moving along per John's recommendations, get involved in charities, raise money, raise amirs, raise, raise dollars, raise awareness, get things going. And a couple of years into this, I'm, I'm doing everything like the poster child should be doing. I'm donating tons of money, and I'm climbing mountains, which will come back to, and I'm doing these things. But I didn't have a reason. I wouldn't have been able to answer your question. It would have stopped right there. I do it because John Gatewood told me to yeah. do it. Um, a couple of years ago, I went through a really nasty separation with my ex-business partner. Although we've always branded home loan expert, the beginning years, I was working for another company. And um, an older guy, we're going to leave all this out so the lawyers don't get too crazy on this. But um, he had the business, he had the company, he handled the underwriting, the warehouse lines of credit, the licensing and all that. And I handled the origination, the branding and bringing the loans in. And we had this good relationship until it wasn't good until it was time for me to take my team and leave and form the home loan expert LLC, which we now have, and we're thriving like crazy. But when I notified him, I was leaving, he started an all out assault on me. You know, he, most people go to bed, probably reading and playing with their kids. I think he reads the, um, the art of war every night, you know? So I, I notify him, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm starting my own deal. Let's make this a soft landing for everybody. I'll take my entire team. Don't worry about all that. I'm not going to take yours. You keep that. Let's make sure our clients as always are always taken care of and everything else. The next day, just a war started on me. He started executing strategy after strategy after strategy on me and doing everything he could to put me out of business and to ruin my brand. I mean, Tim, I had probably 130 loans in my pipeline, active loans. Some were just signed up, some were closing the next day, and he shut me out and locked me out for weeks. And you can imagine what that was doing to the brand when people are calling from a title company yeah. going, hey, what's going on? I have the moving truck, the kids, we're here from Salt oh Lake City, God. and we're supposed to buy a house, and I hear there's no loan docs, you know? And those were really tough times for us, but we knew we had to separate. We knew we had to control the company um, for enormous reasons, but... When those days would get that bad, and they were bad, most people would have just ran up, shut the lights off, and left. They were that bad. I would go down to Cardinal Glennon Hospital, and I would bring Domino's pizzas to the kids. And they would open their doors for me from all the previous fundraising and charity stuff I'd done. They opened the doors for me. Come on in. And I would quit worrying about that separation so fast. My problems were nothing anymore as I'm talking to these kids and they think I'm something important because they see me on TV, but I'm just a mortgage guy down there. And those kids got me through that separation, the business deal, to um, make it to where we are today. So without all the giving back I had done years prior and started all that, I would have never had that opportunity yeah. to go to Cardinal Glennon on those tough days when a man was trying to shut us down and ruin our brand to be able to go into those that hospital, put my problems in check, smile, laugh. And then the next morning, come in and fight again. Yeah. 
And that's why now I see, I couldn't have bought that experience. I couldn't have paid money for that, but I was given that opportunity. And that's um, why now I'm all in and yeah. I am all in and giving back and I will die poor. And, you know, a lot of people, some of the questions I'm asked, you know, when do you sell the home on expert? When do you do? And I have zero plans on that. We're going to take this thing nationwide. We will take down quick and you put that on, on the podcast. We'll come back and laugh in five, 10 years. We will be the largest, most successful, best mortgage company in the nation. We should. We deliver a better product than anybody else. But when that day comes, I want to use that brand to use it to raise money and awareness for a foundation. And my goal would be almost to die broke, you know, for me. Now, the staff can take the company and go do all these crazy things over the years, but I won't die with anything, you know. Well, obviously, if my wife outlives me, which she will, I promise. She's such a good person. <laughs> and I'm not, well, I'm not the worst. But um, I, I, I'll give it all away, you know, and I, it means that much to me. I can remember thinking years ago, hearing about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, you know, pledging to give all their money away. Crazy, crazy. I couldn't even understand that. I get it now. And I'll be so, that okay, guy. So explain it to me, because I, this, is, this is another thing that Ryan has told me with no microphones around. You told me right here on the Kirkwood Brewhouse deck, as a matter of fact, we talked about it. What's You now get what Warren Buffett and Bill Gates said. I still don't get it. What? Why? How? What's the reasoning? You know, when you look at building a business, and our business was built originally in St. Louis, and we've grown on, and you think about all those families that have given us that opportunity to do a loan with them. And, you know, we make the money, we grow, and we give it back to the clients, and we really build this business off all these families out there, all these mortgages, and all those families are going through all kinds of horrible things. And they might not disclose it to their neighbors, but somehow we hear a lot of these stories of why the debt's there or why this. Right. And you think, man, I really built my business for other people out there giving me the opportunity to do the deal with them. I need to find out what's important to them and I need to give back. And I firmly believe that being a business owner is more than just bottom lines. It's about giving back to the community. Now, I'm not a fan of people tell me how I have to give back. People tell me how to allocate my dollars and everything else. I like to do it on my own. And um, I'm just, I'm a firm believer that it's more than just bottom lines. It's about giving back to the communities. And if everybody did that, if all these companies out there and all the individuals out there were even half as sincere as I am about finding ways to raise dollars and awareness, this world would be a great place. And all the BS would just stop. And you wouldn't have to, you know, do all these extravagant, crazy things to force people to do things. It would just be a great place, you know, and um, I hope I can lead by example and in all honesty, it gives me something besides the office to think about. I like to spend about 50% of my time mortgages and 50% giving back. And it kind of mellows me out and gets me in the right place. The more and more I get to know him, the more and more I appreciate him. James Carlton of the James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. Uh, this is a, a sponsor who, listen, I'm happy with any sponsor. That's the name of the game. Uh, otherwise, we don't have this stuff going on. But but James is somebody who who reached out when we were doing the podcast and said he wanted to advertise. That's great. I'm all for it. And, and then since then, because I've gotten to know him, anytime something pops up with an insurance question, I'm able to just text him or get on the phone with him. And stuff that I used to just go, oh, I don't know. Now I'm realizing dotting I's and crossing T's. And to have somebody who's so responsive... And knows so well, it's just, it's one of those things that you didn't know you were missing it until you have it. And I now have it in my dealings with James Carlton. If you're buying a house, getting married, or have a growing family, 
Make sure your loved ones will be okay if you don't make it home. Call James at 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net to see just how inexpensive it is to protect your family through term life insurance. Now, although the worst is unlikely, none of us would leave the driveway without strapping our little tykes into a car seat. Life insurance is no different. Although it's not likely that you don't make it home tonight, it's not a risk worth taking when it comes to providing for your loved ones. State Farm is the number one provider of term life insurance in the U.S. Call James Carlton at 314-961-4800 or apply online at carltoninsurance.net. If someone were to write you a check for two times your salary to never work again, most of us would say, not a chance in hell I'm cashing that. However, many of us solely rely on group coverage to protect our families. It's great if your employer provides that benefit, but most of us with families know there's no way they'd be okay with two times our salary if we passed away. Call James today at 314-961-4800 or apply online at carltoninsurance.net to see just how inexpensive it is to make sure your loved ones are protected. That's James Carlton, State Farm Insurance. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton, State Farm. Back to Ryan Kelly. Can we talk about the climb for the kids real quick? Of course we can. This I, I, is my I, baby. Because I, I, I'm scared of heights. I've climbed, and I, I think we talked about it on, <laughs> on TMA, uh, Camelback and Scottsdale. But, I mean, that's nothing like what you're doing. I mean, Camelback's like a hike relative to, you know, where you have gone and where you are going. I mean, you're putting yourself out there, but really up there. Our climb for the kids, it's our fourth year doing it. It will never go away. Well, this initiative was started four years ago. I think I had seen a movie, Everest, one of those movies, and I thought, boy, I should climb a mountain and raise money for kids. We had had some <laughs> success a couple of years back. I did Tough Mudder down in Atlanta. It was yeah. a big one. And I asked people to donate to Wounded Warriors, and they did. And I was like, well, I might have some power here. The brand might have some power to get people to donate money. And we mm-hmm. learned that with the Wounded Warrior, with the um, Tough Mudder many years ago. So I watched a movie. I'm going to climb a mountain. I'm going to do it for kids. My wife quickly reminds me, you have a real phobia of heights. I mean, it's not just, oh, I'm oh, scared so of you, heights. Oh, so I didn't know. Okay. Oh, I truly do. I mean, I'd rather be um, I'd rather be shot than climb a mountain. You know, I, that doesn't, you know, I shouldn't be like that. But I mean, I'd rather do about anything than climb a mountain. But that's what makes it work is because people know I'm coming out of my comfort zone and I'm going to put myself out there so they donate. And that was the, the whole thing. The, so the first year I sent an email out to the company and said, hey, I'm going to climb Mount Rainier. I'll pay for everybody's stuff. Who's coming with me? We're going to raise money for friends and kids with cancer. And crickets. I didn't get one reply. So I bop out of my dad and I walk around. Hey, you get my email? Oh, yeah, I'm not going up that mountain. You're stupid. Oh, <laughs> And then about a week later, April, McCoy goes, you think I could climb that mountain? I go, sold. You know? And I signed her up yeah. immediately. So we had our first team. And we thought we were doing everything right. We trained. I was. We were running five miles a day. We were you know, trying to get in the best shape of our lives. And we started the the website up. We started collecting money for friends and kids with cancer. The money was piling in for them, and it was great. And then it came time to go out to Mount Rainier to summit it. And um, we're all happy, and we get on the plane, and we have our backpacks. I think still has the price tags on it. We're like, yeah, we're going on out there. And we land in Portland instead of Seattle, and we drive into Rainier National Park. And I can remember just the two of us in this little rental car, and April's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And there's a break in the forest, and we look, and we see Mount Rainier there, and we just look at each other like that was our first reality check of what we were doing. Like, holy shit, we're going to go climb that thing? No, oh, my gosh. And I don't think we talked much after that until we got to base camp. 
and um, and that was uh, that was um, that was an exciting time. We get to base camp, and there's all these professional teams, you know, and they're all sitting around the campfire. They're always under a fire, but they're all sitting around outside, and and everybody's talking about their experience, and the mountains they've climbed, and the first teams like, oh, we did Kilimanjaro, we did uh, we did Mount St. Helen last week to get ready for this, and the other guys like. Oh, and I've done uh, Denali, and I've done this, and oh, that it has gets to be to so us, intimidating. And they're like, well, "What about you guys, April Ryan? What have you climbed? You're like uh, Castlewood?" <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, "Ooh, what's Castlewood? Uh, like, yeah, it's this place outside of St. Louis, uh, elevation 400 feet." You know? <laughs> they're like, "Well, good luck, guys." And that was it. And that was a three-day climb. Mount Rainier is a uh, glacieractic volcano. It's a single mountain, which means there aren't foothills really around it. It's just one. Gigantic mountain. If you're in Seattle, yeah, you, you can, can see, see it. From it. Seattle, fourteen thousand four hundred eleven yeah. feet. I know every one of them. And um, the first year we went up, I fell short. I did not summit that the first year. I was seven hundred feet short of the summit, and I had to stop. They tried to get me to stop that day. I insisted I go up. They wrote me up. The top of near is the tough part. I mean, it's all tough. You're sleeping on ice. You're um, you're crossing crevasses with ladders. Ah, you're going ah. up there, and it's like Everest on the top of Rainier. It truly is, and um, it's at high altitude, so you're at fourteen thousand feet. It's hard to breathe. You've been trekking up from five thousand feet to fourteen, so a lot of elevation gain. You're hearing at night the 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 glaciers move, so rocks are coming. I saw a guy's leg get taken off by a boulder right in front of us. Like you saw a guy's leg get all, taken oh, off. Oh yeah, the bone sticking out. It was a disaster. Oh my god! So then I got to see that at five in the morning, this first second day up there. So and I'm he's like, just and, sleeping all of a sudden. A no, takes they away? started out that morning from camp, and they're on their three man teams crossing a field, a glacier field, with snow and rocks are coming down because as these glaciers move a few inches a day, they knock off boulders and rocks and they come down those mountains and just took them off from the knee down. Oh my and God. we're April and I are looking at this, you know, we had the first day got up to camp, camped second morning, the helicopter's coming. Like we wake up to the commotion. Someone's leg had just, you know, been, been taken off there. And we're like, okay, here we go. And we kept going up and um, camp the next night. And then the summit, you have to do the summit in the middle of the night before the sun hits the mountain or those boulders and crevices really open up. And um, the guy had talked to me, said, maybe, you know, this is where you're done for the day. You know, you're, you're battling a little bit. I had not slept in three days. Oh. I couldn't sleep at the altitude. Here's, a, here's one for you. I hadn't used the bathroom in three days. You're not allowed to um, poop on the snow. You have to poop in a little blue bag, and you got to take that bag off the mountain with you. It's no trace, zero trace. You take everything with you. I'm not one to just pull down my uh, pants in the middle of an ice storm and poop in a bag, you know. <laughs> no offense, but I need my good toilet and a magazine and all that stuff. So... I haven't slept. I haven't used the facilities. And I'm like, nope, I'm going up. I'm going to go up to the top. And he's like, let's go. I'm keeping you roped to me. And there'll be one more person that's a strong climber with you. And let's go. And we started out at 3 a.m. And at 6 o'clock, 700 feet short from the summit, he stopped me. I couldn't stand any longer. So 6 o'clock, we're talking 6 in the morning? A.m., yeah. 6 a.m. So I, three hours. Three hours into that. And I was— So how, how far I had did about you an hour and a half left. Three hours. 700 feet short. So I had so, gone up about 4,000 feet. So where 4, were you? Oh, you'd gone up 4,000? I could see the summit. Wow. And a few more zigzags and some more crevices, and I was there. I got a point to the top of the disappointing cleaver, and I made it about another hour, and then that was the end of that day. So what's happening? That he says to stop, <clears> or you say I just can't? They wouldn't go up. Yeah, I had been saying, he had been asking me to stop for hours. Really? I wouldn't stop. And But then, you know, you're on a ladder. You can't see the bottom of the crevasse. You're crossing it with your crampons on. There are, like, spikes you put on your boots. 
And, you know, you're, if you fall, you're taking a team down that crevasse with you, which means you're going to go into a bottom of a V and get suffocated up. And I could barely stand anymore. And so he's like, this is where, this is where you end this one. So the team took my banner up. They finished the summit. I worked my way down and um, th- got down to the bottom. So they of, go up and then you're. They got up and I so started working doing? down. So you go down by yourself? One guide, man. I pooped like it. Man, I got it out of me when I knew I was coming down. That was ready. And um, get to the bottom, kiss the ground, never going up a mountain again. Thinking about the kids, though, the money we raised, it was great. And I compared to childbirth, although we've never given birth. We've been in the room, right, and um, been through that. You know, right after you have a baby, the last thing you want to do is have another baby. And um, right after I climbed Mount Rainier, the last thing you want to do is climb another mountain. So that was a one-time deal. We were done. But about six months later, started coming back. You know, you forget about the terrifying stuff you'd gone through and this and that, and and you, you, you start to itch it for it again. And I knew I had to go back up to Rainier and get to the top of that mountain and do that. And um, we launched our Climb for the Kids second annual, raised over 15K. This year we had Alec Ingram fights cancer, Cardinal Glennon Hospital, Friends of Kids, raised over 15 grand. And it was just as hard the second year as it was the first year. Different difficulties, different things, but it was still very difficult. And right when I got to that point where I turned around the year before and I almost turned around again, I start thinking about those kids. And I start thinking again, going back to them, about what they go through every day. You know, can you imagine just nonstop picking you and, you know, surgeries and chemos and radiations and more cutting you open and this? It's just, how can I not go? So that second year, I went right up to the top. It was an emotional moment for me. I called, you know, their charitable organizations. I took a burner phone. I had every phone provider, so just so one would work when I went up. Oh, and, so you called from it? Oh, yeah, I call. And, and I, seriously, I had like a th- couple burners, you know, and I had it all. Just Who has it? Verizon, at and yeah. where am I getting uh, out right. on? Came down that mountain. I knew right then we would do it every year. And we did our third climb for the kids was last year. I had just had a baby. I just had a baby. My wife had just had a baby. <laughs> we had just had a baby. And my wife wasn't um, going to allow me out of the house to do the mountain I wanted to do. So our third year, Carolina from our running team ran the Pikes Peak Marathon. And that's a difficult race. It's basically Colorado Springs, all trail up to the top of Pikes Peak, 14,000 or so feet, back down. It's one of the toughest marathons to run. But that was our third year. We raised enormous money again. Now it's our fourth year doing Climb for the Kids. I will be, um, I've selected a team. There's four of us going up. We are going to summit the Grand, the Grand Teton. It's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This mountain is going to be very tricky for me. The Grand is about 13,500 feet. I'll know it when I climb it, but give or take 13,500. And the toughest part about the Grand, I can handle the, the first day. You know, you meet at base camp. I think the elevation of Jackson Hole is about 5,000 feet. And you meet at base camp very early. The sun's not out. And you start the trek through the woods and on the trails before you know it, the trees are gone. And now you're in the boulders. And you get up to about 10,000 feet. So that first day is a 5,000-foot elevation game over about nine miles of trekking. And uh-huh. They call it scrambling. You're not really rock climbing. You're on big boulders, and you're uh-huh. doing things scrambling. And then you have to set up camp, you know. When you get through all that, you post up camp, and you sleep to about 3 a.m. again. And then you get up from camp, and now you harness up, rope up, different shoes. You put your approach shoes, your climbing shoes on. And right out of camp, you're hanging on 2,000 sheer foot cliffs. And you're doing rock climbing at high altitude. Mm-hmm. You're full full exposure. Exposure means there's nothing to stop you if you fall. You're 100% exposure at that point. And that top of the grand, that last 2,000 feet is full exposure where 
you have a foothold on something, maybe two inch rock, and you're holding on with a hand and it's 2000 feet below you and you have to get around this cliff. So you have to move, you know, 100 feet across the sheer face of this mountain. With my phobia, with my extreme fear of heights, that's going to be tough. It's going to be very tough. No training can get me ready for that. But I, I'm all in and I'm going to the top. And when I get to that point where I don't think I have another step in me, I will think about the kids, the people we're raising money for, and how much they go through and what that means to me. And I'll take my butt right up to the top of that mountain. Our five charitable organizations are um, Friends of Kids with Cancer. They will always be part of our Climb for the Kids initiative. We also have SSM Health Cardinal Glennon, Alec Ingram Fights with Cancer. We have Fight DMD, that's Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy. Um, muscular dystrophy is, is one of the sickest diseases out there. Once you're diagnosed and it starts to um, come full force at you, your muscles stop working. And your brain still works great, but you can no longer use your muscles. And you lose mobility at first. And you, eventually your lungs, your heart, everything stops working. And it's such a sickening disease, uh, muscular dystrophy, because you're sharp as a wick. But yeah. you're drooling and you can't breathe and you can't control yourself anymore. So Fight DMD is Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it affects... Um, about 3,000 boys a year get this. It's for boys only, young boys get it. And a family that I become close for, close with in Nashville, his two boys have been diagnosed with this at young ages. And um, they're about three years apart. So it's so sad because the younger one sees what will happen to him. And um, it's it's tough. I'll be with Terry and his boys um, in Nashville tomorrow. And then our final one is Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, where they get their treatment. We're trying to raise money for a cure. Although Terry's boys are too old now and too far along, they, can, they won't see the cure. It won't help them. Their family is so resilient and so powerful. And um, they fight every day to raise money for a cure for future families. So those are our five beneficiaries. It's our fourth annual Climb for the Kids. And um, we have a lot of big corporate sponsorships coming in this year. Worldwide Technology, Clayco, to name a few. Um, Guarantee Electric. There's just... A lot of support for our initiative, and we're going to film the whole thing. We'll make a great oh, movie. After, oh, yeah. So, well, production coming out of this year. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. So, I better get to the top, and I better look good doing <laughs> it, right? <laughs> be, the joke is I'm sure I'll pee my pants quite a few times and scream and yell and curse. We'll just edit all that out. Make, make me look like a king, right? No, oh. but with um, we'll be out there um, August 11th through the 13th. We're going to summit the Grand in two days. We'll do one day of um, – we have a guide, and one day he wants to see how we can climb before he'll – go up with us and then we're going to try to summit or we will summit that grand in two days most folks do it in four we don't have that kind of time so we're going to move quick uh, no room for error just like you know some of my trips you just can't my uh, my work yeah. days you just got to keep pushing and hopefully on the 13th i'll be on the top of the grand teton looking at the full valley east and west of uh, jackson hole and the tetons crying i'm sure calling all five beneficiaries talking to them all and um, our goal this year is we're trying to raise $50,000 for our Climb for the Kids. Big jump. And um, we're already over 20000 That's Big awesome. Tip the cat to you, sir, for your generous donation and for all the listeners out there that have donated to the Climb for the Kids. This is one. Backstoppers is another one. We're heavily involved. I'll, I'll stop after this one. But Backstoppers is very close to me. I have family that are cops and uh, first responders. And um, they have an incredible organization called Guns, of, Guns and Hoses. And every year, this is a, I think they've done it 30 years, Tim, the cops versus the firefighters versus the paramedics, they get in the ring yeah. and they box. And they're serious about this. There will be 15,000, 16,000 people at the big fights. Uh, last year, raised over $600,000 for Backstoppers, wow. just the one event. I'm big involved in that event. I might fight in that event this year, let wow. that out of the bag. Uh, if a first responder falls out of the fight within a month, they can plug it in with somebody that's not a first responder. So I'm staying fit and in shape. And 
maybe a young, hopefully uh, not too young, but a skinny, <laughs> lightweight guy. You know, uh, says, "Hey, I need a fighter. Uh, I'll jump in that uh, ring." But <laughs> we just um, pledged a hundred thousand dollars to um, backstoppers through Guns and Hoses wow. for Hormone Expert. Those um, those first responders know we have their backs. We have their six. They know when we do loans for them, we we roll off the carpet. They know when they need a golf tournament sponsored, major K squad, whatever it is, they come to us. We satisfy all the things. So it's for me, it's the kids fighting life threatening disease. It's the coppers, the kids. I just they're so innocent. And um, I was talking about it with somebody last week. You know, they've never had a first kiss. They've they've never been on a date. They've never stolen their parents' car and snuck out at night or taken their credit card out of their mom's wallet. You know, like. They're just so perfect and innocent. And unfortunately, they've lived half their lives in these hospitals. And how can you not want to raise money for cures for these things and to give them better lives? And a lot of the money we raise goes for, you know, fun stuff for them. It's just not all about the cure. It's right. about putting iPads in their hands and, you know, putting a new Xbox game cart, you know, on the floor so that they can play games and, and do stuff like that. So our giving back is something that's very close to me. Again, we joke the loans are to pay the bills, but giving back is what we really do. And if you work in my office, you're equally as passionate about it. My my team, which we didn't talk much about, is also a huge, huge part of our success. We we discuss how they don't leave and they're all in and all that, but they're right there with me, working mm-hmm. those days, working as hard as I do. My loan officers all have to be involved in some giving back. Big brothers and sisters is right up on the top of that. Another one of my loan officers donates 15% of his income every year. Wow. So he writes the big checks every year. I mean, so... I try to teach these younger guys all these things so that it opens them up at a younger age than I was. And that's one of the things, my loan officers, you know, they're, um, there's not a lot of times a loan officer rises up to where I've gotten and where I will you know, take this company. Usually someone's smart, you know, somebody like the big um, compliance guy or somebody yeah. else goes out and starts their company. But I'm a loan officer that got this company. So everybody knows I love my LOs, but I love all my team. And my team is the secret to us. We talked about the culture, but they're right there with me. Every day, they're sacrificing birthdays and holidays and working Saturdays and Sundays. And just they're right there with me, donating, giving back to our community and working to get the success of this company going. What a great thing. Well, your passion for your team, which I also know is uh, is 100 percent legit and charity uh, led to uh, a signature moment for uh, both of us with your uh, fight with Timberfake a couple of years ago. Uh, if I recall correctly, he was at a TMA Live. You were at a TMA Live. Tracy was also at this TMA Live. Ooh, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> and, and he was popping off as he was one to do. And th- this was th- this was not scripted at all. We had no idea this was coming. I don't even know if you had any idea it was coming. And you walked up and said, I'll fight him. Background, if you would, sir. Timberfake had had a fight in years past uh, with, with the, the great one, producer joe producer joe and timberfake had won that fight and shocked the world shocked the world <laughs> and um he always had that he was always you know i'm the i'm the title champion i'm the sign that and i thought it was about time that he put that belt that strap on the line so uh, we had talked we talked about doing a boxing um, fight in the weeks leading up or the months leading up to it. But then it just kind of all the pieces fell together. Mm-hmm. And I was at the TMA live and what a fun event that was. And, and, um, walked right up on stage. He was, um, on the, on the, um, on the mic talking yeah. and slurring and blah, blah, blah. And, 
And I texted you, Tim. I go, hey, can I go up there and challenge Timberfake to a fight? And he's like, absolutely, <laughs> sir. And there's probably a pony behind that. And, <laughs> and I walked right up. And um, while he was talking, he kind of glanced behind and saw me standing behind him. And he just turned like, yeah. And I'm like, hey, I like to fight. And then everybody's just like, oh, the crowd goes crazy. And he's like, I'm like, I want, I want that strap. I'll take that strap from you right now. And he's like, oh. And I said, but this time we're going to raise money for children. We're going to raise money for great organizations. But I will fight you for that strap. And um, and then the crowd went crazy. Yeah. And then you, um, right away, um, Timberfake, do you accept the challenge? He said, yes. And so started the battle on Broadway. Oh and what an God. amazing... Um, what an amazing charitable event that was. There's all the fun stories that go into it. 20 grand, it. I think, if I'm Over not mistaken. Over 20K. Yeah, that you yeah. and I came at the I, end and I really we sipped had, it we up. Had, we had four each four got 15, checks. and then there was another yeah. five right. on there, and then some other stuff. I mean, so I think— And that atmosphere in that place that night, unreal. wasn't that just unreal? I, I mean, for, for something as, you know, when it gets down to it, as dumb as that was. Sold out. Sold out. <laughs> packed and people were going nuts i mean it was insane it was such an it truly was an electric atmosphere the thing that i wondered about like for producer joe that he like he wears that still and it's been like Ouch. five or six years yeah i know that's who he should be talking rematches yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he refuses under any circumstances but in your mind i mean you probably knowing you you're probably like yeah i'm not going to lose so i don't i don't even think about it but i mean here you are successful businessman in st louis you know, father of three, going into the ring against this guy. What are you? And you train. I mean, you trained legit with uh, uh, Harold, right? Harold Petty, Coach uh, Petty. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I trained. I I didn't train as hard as maybe I could have for that fight. I I went down to Tolton Park and I trained one day a week. I boxed for over a little over an hour. Got appreciation for that. And um, isn't that a workout? It, My we're, God, that's a workout. The boxing stuff. You know, when the coach goes, "Hey, jump rope for seven minutes straight," and you're like, "Yeah," <laughs> you know, thirty seconds in, you're like, nah, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not doing exactly this anymore." The first time I did it, he goes, "Yeah, just jump rope for ten minutes," and I go, "Okay, no big deal." A minute, and you're going. Oh my God! I got nine more minutes of this. You purposely start letting it get caught up, yeah. so it can stop. And then I remember sparring for the first time, and like ding, ding, three minutes, and about thirty seconds in, I mean, I'm cashed out. Cashed I was. out. I um, there wasn't a lot of good strategy on my half. I knew I had to win the fight. I knew I had to train hard enough to make sure I won it. I had the whole brand, the company on the line, and he had nothing on the line to lose. So. If he would have won, I, I oh. was just in my mind on those nights when I can't sleep. It's like Timberfake, the home loan expert. You know, like, <laughs> he's this guy's gonna go crazy, and uh, I can't win. I gotta do it for the city. I gotta do it for the city. You know, and um, we got down there to battle on Broadway, and the adrenaline starts going. Yeah. I had never been in a boxing match like this, and um, we get there early. We we don't have the right gear with us. We'd forgotten half of it. Oh gonna, no way! I didn't know the, the night of the fight. I'm in my office at three o'clock, normal day, and I go, I gotta go down to Cardinal Glen. I gotta get down there before the fight. I gotta see my buddy Alec, who's going through some pretty serious treatments at the time. I gotta go see the kids. So I left my office and I go down to Cardinal Glen and they're writing Sharpies, you know, Team Alec on my legs, and I'm telling them about the fight. And then I leave there to hurry up and get home. And the traffic was a nightmare coming from downtown to my house. Wow. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Then I get to my house and there's already people there. And then we're barbecuing before you know it. And um, <laughs> there's a big party at my yeah, house. Yeah. You know, the, the pre-fight party. Coach shows up like, what is going on here? <laughs> what is this? I'm like, God, oh, just relax. We're going to have a party. And, uh, and then it's like, we got to go. We're running late down to there. And we jump in the car and we head down to Broadway. About halfway there, Coach goes, uh, oh, man, I forgot my bag. And I'm like, what's in the bag? And he's, 
the tape, the gauze, your jock strap, everything, you know, your cup, whatever, yeah. everything you yeah. need is yeah. in the bag. And I'm like, we don't have time. We're going to Broadway, and uh, we show up with no supplies, really. Oh, my God. I had I my gloves, that. but that was it because I was wearing them at my house playing around <laughs> before we jumped in the car. And um, so we get down there, and I am also was battling a, um, a bad hernia. I had um, I had a really bad tear and, and had a hernia the size of a golf ball protruding out of me on my right-hand side. And it had ripped about two weeks before the fight a second place. So I had two, like, golf ball size. Those were my intestines poking through my muscle wall. Oh. And that's why I can't throw any right. So I have this hernia. A lot of people don't know that, but it doesn't really matter. I'm having a party at my house. We get down there. We don't have any equipment. Then the adrenaline's hitting, and everybody's going crazy down there. There's hundreds of people. It's being broadcasted live on radio. I mean, this thing. Then Timber Faye comes with his entourage and all this garbage. And... <laughs> Next thing you know, it's like, okay, it's time for you to go down. And then they come up, they're like, where's your, where's your cup? I'm like, I don't have one. And then this this poor boxer that had fought in the amateurs before me, and he was all sweaty and drenched. He just gotten beat up really bad. You can wear mine if you want. And I'm like, give me your cup, man. I got to have a cup. I put on his cup. And then they go, and you need a shirt. I'm like, a shirt? And like, you have to wear something. This is amateurs. You have to wear a shirt. You can wear my shirt. And he rings out his muscle shirt. Oh. And I, all the sweat dripping. I just put it on. Got this guy's cup on. Got this guy's shirt on. I just have my gloves on. No tape. No gauze. My hands aren't done. This hernia is poking through so bad I can barely walk. I can feel it. Then I get out in the rain, and there's just the adrenaline hits you. And you're just like, Rawr! and I'm up there dancing around like an idiot. Rawr! Getting the crowd all psyched up. And then they introduce my opponent. And he slow plays it for like 10 minutes or so. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I was yeah, in the ring like, what is this guy doing? To play. He wouldn't come out. He would not come out unless the right song was played. So in any that, fight. I thought we were going to have a riot on our hands if he didn't come out. I'd have dragged him out. But um, <laughs> So what happened was 10 minutes later he comes out. I lost all my adrenaline. It's gone oh, at that point. Ooh. So you have a thing in fight. It's called an adrenaline drop, and it's a real thing. And that's why you can't slow play your opponent. Your opponent can't slow play you. Sorry. you got to get out there. You know, get the next guy in there and get fighting right away while that adrenaline's going. By the time that bell rang, I had been out on that in that ring for 20 minutes. Everything else, he added all up. And then this guy just comes at me swinging. And I'm just like, it, and I take a couple hits in the head. And I'm like, it's time to wake up, you know. And did my best, fought my way through it. It went all five rounds. I won all five rounds unanimous. Not one judge gave Timber mm -hmm. Fake any of the rounds. I won the fight, but really our three charitable organizations won. And they won Battle on Broadway. And we put that together, Timmy. And that's something that yourself and I and everybody else that worked on those teams to put that fight together. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of hard work, but it was three little birds for life for one of the beneficiaries. They're incredible, three little birds for life. Of course, we had friends and kids with cancer. And to see Judy down there at the fight, it was, uh, it was amazing. And we had Catherine Cares. And uh, those yep. three organizations, although I won the fight, they really won, and I was so proud of what we'd accomplished. I find out we're having an after party at my house after the fight, and, um, you know, I quickly clean up my stuff at South Broadway. I head home, and I get home, and there's 50 cars already at my house. <laughs> All my loan officers have their shirts off. They're blaring music in the front yard. They're out there dancing. <laughs> I pull up, and half the station was there. Yeah. Everybody was there, and we partied all night. My point is, it's like three in the morning. I can't get her. I'm trying to get everybody out. I'm still wearing this guy's shirt. You know, <laughs> like I'm still a stinky mess. I got Timberfix blood all over me, you know, and, and I'm partying. And I finally get everybody out three and I jump and we have a hot tub. I get in my hot tub with my brother in law, have a cigar, yeah. kind of decompress. Yeah. And then I just pack the car and I went to the river house. Just and, like um, that. Decompress really? there for a few Even days. Further. Let the social media kind of go and let everything go. And that was my first fight for um you know an amateur fight 
It was a great fight. I'm glad I won the fight, obviously. I'm glad the charities won the fight. I'm also glad for the listeners. You know, they get some, um, they get, they don't have to, the timber fake anymore. I think he's, he's off doing other things now. So everybody won, you know, and that's the beauty there. I remember when you guys met in the center and the referees reading the rules. And I'm like, you know, I mean, I figured you were going to win anyway, but the look in your eyes and then the look in his eyes, I'm like, oh, Ryan's going to win this thing. He was scared. I mean, he, I, I think he knew that he didn't prepare the way he needed to. And he knew that the moment of truth had arrived and his day of reckoning was about to commence. Yeah. And you ensured that. I mean, he, there, th- that thing was teetering on the brink of a KO or a TKO. Yeah, you know? I, I mean, you knocked him down rough. a few times. Yeah, and then I got some. I got a point taken from hit, trying to hit him when he was down. It just it was my first fight. You know, my second one won't look anything like that. You know, I've been in that experience. I've had the bell ring. I know what's going to happen. And until you're in that situation, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's easy to trash talk it. But until you get in the ring, so my my hat's off for Timber Fake for getting in that ring because mm-hmm. he was scared, and that's why he didn't come out. And, um, oh, you think that's what it was? That's he was slow playing that whole thing. <laughs> I was out there like an idiot, jumping up. Oh. Where is he? Oh, the Undertaker yeah. music's playing. Yeah, yeah. Guys are blowing fire. Things happening, you know. Yeah, but everybody in the charitable organizations win, and um, I, I would do it again. I'd yeah. fight. I'd box again. Heck, I'll climb a mountain. And I'll I'll do whatever I have to do to raise money for the kids, for the first responders. I, I'll put myself out there, and I'll do whatever it takes. Well, you're a good man, sir. Uh, your story is incredible. I hope it is uh, is inspiring to uh, current entrepreneurs and potentially future entrepreneurs for not only how you built your business, uh, how you credit your family with your business's success uh, and your team and how much you credit them, but then also the element of uh, charity, not just cutting checks, but actually doing it. That, that, that's the thing that to me separates. That's an amazing thing and a credit to you for doing it and for continuing to be hungry to continue to build the business and continue to give back. So uh, I wanted people to hear the story because anytime we talk about it, I always go, God, you know, Ryan was like going door to door selling mortgages. What in the hell? And now you have uh, built what you've built. And it's, it's such a great story. And I think it's inspiring to people who uh, talk about, you know, we're sitting in a cubicle right now listening to this. Well, man, I think I could do something, but they don't want to take the shot. You got to take the, the shot. Story, you know, you got to take the shot. And all of those little anybody who's an entrepreneur has those moments where you go, that was such a significant moment in time. You know, and perhaps, yeah, timing is a factor. There's no question, but you also have to have the courage in order to take the risk and you put yourself in position to be successful whenever that time arrives. And so you did that and, uh, and look what you've built, you know, and done and, and how much that's impacted, not just the people who work with you and obviously your family, but as a byproduct, so many charities and kids who you've worked for. And that's the real thing right there. You just nailed on the head is the impact that we can make in the community as we continue to grow the homeowner expert brand. The homeowner expert will go. I can assure you of that. I won't kick it. I won't stop kicking and fighting and screaming until it's number one in every category out there. But the real reason is the bigger we get the company, the bigger our footprint is, the bigger our reach is, the more money we can raise. And that's a really driving factor. And, you know, um, I've been through a lot of adversity over the years. I've been through places most folks shouldn't be. I've had to make hard decisions. I've had to put all the chips on the table at least three times to get home on expert to where it is. And I'm sure there'll be many more times like that. But that's the value that we have that these other companies don't. And that's not something you can buy. Those knocking on doors, I mean, you can't buy that experience of what that was for me to sit at these kitchen tables, to have those doors slammed to me and all that. Like, you can't buy that. 
Nothing was given to me. We had to fight for it every single day, and we don't stop. We still fight every day. We get better every year and work harder every year and try to make it more complicated so no one else can do it. And um, until you've had that adversity in life, until you have been to rock bottom, you know, you, you just can't appreciate it and you can't grow it. I have a guy that works for me now, and um, this isn't for him. He doesn't want to be in the mortgage industry his whole life. Something happened, clicked, and he wants to be a photographer, and he's really big into that, and he's doing the wedding videos and all that stuff now. But that's his passion, and that's what he loves to do. And he came to me a while back and goes, this isn't it for me. And um, I, I want to do something else. Here's my passion. He laid it out. And he says, I want to be so good in videos. You use me as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. You use me. And you know, it was a tearful conversation because he invested several years with us, and he has helped us grow to where we are. And, um, and I, he knew that I was a good enough guy and an entrepreneur to sit down and not just fire him on the spot. Right. And we worked that out. And um, his business, as much as he wants to do that full time, he's not ready to let this go yet, his yeah. steady paycheck. But I had lunch with him last week, and I said, you know, it's a double-edged sword here. You're fortunate, as you've told me many times, because I am very understanding. But as an entrepreneur, I want to get you out of here. You need to go live in your car. You need to go do these things and suffer and put yourself out there and fail or you're never going to make it. And if I hold your hand and you work here for the paycheck and then go home to edit wedding videos and all that stuff for several hours yeah. a night, you're never going to get there. You have to be broke and go live in your car and, and wonder how you're going to pay for groceries. I remember like yesterday, like yesterday, my wife was about eight months pregnant. We were about ready to have the baby. And I was still knocking on doors and doing that. And we went to the grocery store. We went to the Schnooks over in Richmond Heights. And I knew I didn't have a lot of money on my credit card for groceries, right? And I didn't want to freak my wife out. I just got married and she's, she's pregnant. And I knew that I didn't have a lot of cash. And we're at, we're at the Schnooks, you know, shopping. And I snuck three aisles over to the frozen food aisle by myself. I get out my only credit card I had at the time. And here I am calling the 800 number, typing in my credit to see what my available balance is, how much money I had left. And my wife's just three aisles over, just not even knowing I'm doing this. And then I hear I only have $85 available on that credit card. And I knew I had to get her out of that store before she spent more than $85. So I remember checking the credit card, seeing I have $85, running up, scanning her cart real quick to make sure there wasn't anything expensive in there, and then telling her the story, like, hey, we got to get out of here. I have to get back to work. Nope, we got to go. She's like, I haven't even gotten milk. We got to go. We got to go. And going through that aisle and just sitting there while they scan every item and watching it and watching it get up to like $73 and then swiping that card and it's approved and taking her home and unpacking the three bags of groceries and going to my car and crying and just crying like, to like bawling in my car and then going to knock on doors again for another six hours that day. And you have to have those moments or you'll never get to where we're getting now. You'll never appreciate it and you'll never fight. And that's why our competition in our industry, A, it's our customer service we deliver and all that, but they don't have that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, you stand no chance at fighting against us. You know, you might as well just go sell insurance or do something different because we have that. And I do a good job of bringing that to my team every day. They know the money could get shut off any day. Something can change. Like we have to fight harder than everybody. We have to work harder. If they start at nine, we start at eight. That's not good enough. We're seven. We're starting at six in the morning now at my office. We're seven days a week till 10 p.m. Like we want it that bad because I don't want to be back there checking my balance, scanning items, hoping and praying they don't go over 80 bucks and crying in my car anymore. And um, 
that's uh, that's how I'll probably end it with that. Just yeah, if you want to be successful in your business, a you have to take that leap of faith. You have to go out there and do it. And B, it's never going to be sexy the whole time. You know, I don't know anybody that I sit down and talk with that have been successful. And they always say these great stories. They always have to have some adversity. And the more adversity, the more successful their businesses are. The harder times get. Like when I didn't summit Mount Rainier the first time, I needed to fail. I had to fail at that to know what I needed to do to prepare for the next year. Mm -hmm. And if I wouldn't have had a lot of those pivot moments in my business, we'd never have gotten where we are. But we're up for the fight. And, you know, when the lending people ask, well, what do you do when rates going to go up? Or what do you do? Like, we almost kind of secretly welcome all of that. We Right now, we're in the most competitive days for the mortgage business we've seen in over 10, 20 years. You have the CEO of some of these larger lenders like Wells Fargo coming out and going, we've never seen anything so competitive. We're walking away from FHA or whatever it is. But we don't mind that. We, we are up for that fight. And we will fight that fight every day. And we will win that fight more often than we will lose it. And that's, um, that's the secret to that success is just um, fighting hard, realize when you get knocked down, learn from that, get back up and fight harder, and then always take care of your clients. That's what we're known for. We brought customer service to an industry that had none, and our industry is changing every day, and we're well aware of that. We know how you know, our, um, you know, things will look in five years and look a lot different than today, and we're always preparing for those things now with digital mortgages and all these other things that we're, um, you know, always creating and mm-hmm. developing and, you know, getting towards. Well, incredible story. I've enjoyed hearing the story. Plenty of things I didn't know. Thank you for sharing it with me and with our audience, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. And, um, I mean, I'm following up Joe Buck. I figure you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't get anybody to follow that one. So you're throw the whole oh, yeah, Rich, we, Rich school, we got Rich Gould in between. Rich oh, is the buffer. I love Richie. Rich, Rich is the buffer. He's great. That's classic. Ryan, thank you so much. My pleasure, sir. Thank you for everything you do, Tom. Thank you, brother. So there it is, my conversation with Ryan Kelly, the story of how the HomeLoanExpert.com came to be. And it's it's one of those things. And I, I guess I'm not necessarily thinking of anybody specifically. Uh, so this isn't like passive-aggressive or Twitter shade or any of that crap. But I'm, I would imagine many, many of you listening can think of people who are like, yeah, I know that person's out there and getting attention for their charity, but I don't really know how sincere it is with Ryan. I mean, help. I mean, that interview was me and him in the studio. That's it. The home loan expert.com studios and his sincerity for charity. Oh, wow. Fun with rhymes. His sincerity for charity, uh, is as legitimate as it gets. I mean, it's just, it's what he believes in and he explained how it came to be, but it is so important to him and his energy for both his business and for charity and his family. And that isn't uh, some, oh, it'll sound good if I talk about my family. That's the real deal. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it is in a sense, it's all inspiring. I don't know how he does it, but it is real because I've seen it. I've seen it, you know, away from microphones. I've seen it away from cameras. I know it is the real deal and that's why his business continues to thrive. And then also over the course, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, over the course of that interview, You know, Ryan talked about good fortune with timing, and he certainly talked about work ethic and certainly talked about visualizing. He called it dreaming uh, the the goals he wanted and the goals he still has. But also over the course of that, there were were just like little elements at times where you you go, okay, this guy has um, some traits and some knowledge that, that separates him from the pack. Um, and perhaps uh, to his credit, he doesn't give himself as much credit as he deserves for that. Um, 
like I said, over the course of the interview, you know, it's, I know you're not going to say it, so I'll say it. Uh, you know, you've been successful. Uh, so, uh, let's, let's, let's operate off of there and, and, and be real honest about the situation because that's the goal of this podcast is just to BS candidly. And you hear how he built the business. You're going, okay, he, he, he's able to do some things and think some things through and see things that maybe other people in his industry don't. And that also contributes to his success, but certainly work ethic. And, um, you know, when you, when you have a core staff and you don't have a lot of turnover, that's an illustration of doing something right. That's a, that to me has always been a tell. If you have whatever, it doesn't matter what the uh, industry is. If you have a lot of turnover, that's a tell. Uh, it's not a good one. And if you have a lot of stability, uh, that's also a tell. And that's a good one. And Ryan does have the same people working with him, and he has for years. So I uh, I appreciated some insight into how he built the business. The story is entertaining. The timber fake fight and what went on there, and also what he is about to do uh, with climbing the Grand Tetons, uh, the Grand, uh, for, uh, the fourth annual climb for the kids, a tip of the cap. Enjoyed the conversation with him. Thank you to, of course, Ryan Kelly, uh, for his time and also for being our studio sponsor at the homeloanexpert.com. Thank you to James Carlton of James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. And thank you to Mark Hanna for presenting our guest, Ryan Kelly, Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. And of course, Johnny Landoff Chevrolet online at Landoff.com or at the intersection of Highway 270 and Washington Elizabeth exit. It's where my wife got her car. It's where we'll be getting our cars from now on. It's Johnny Landoff Chevrolet at Landoff.com. As always, thank you for tuning in to the Tim McKernan Show. Looking forward to bringing you Courtney Bryant of KMOV next week. And of course, questions from the audience. As well, you're always welcome to email me at tmckernan at insidestl.com with any questions, feedback, whatever the case might be. I enjoy interacting with the audience. As always, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our guest, Ryan Kelly, and thank you to producer Kenneth Iggy Strode. I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of The Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios.